Okay. Uh, we will pause the recording. We will be having John Anthony Castro joining the Caribbean Thought class today. We'll be talking about American politics as it is. And American politics is important to Caribbean. And um, so this is important. Um, and I hope that the students will, will fully appreciate this. And um, I'm looking forward to it. By the way, I've updated the background. Um, since we're teaching, we're talking about Caribbean thought. So this will be good. We will, we will, we will do this. All right. Du, 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 du. And I will pause. Let's this. The strategy is different. The, 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 the strategy of penetration. Okay. The, tr the strategy of, 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 re of domination is different. While Russia today is using force, while Russia today is using coercion, while Russia today is penetrating Ukraine through force or through war, a weaker country. And I'm going to explain a little bit about that. And I say, I say, to, some, I say to some of you, they are, if I say to some of you, um, in, the 1980, in the 1980s, when, when the former USSR countries were breaking up, the Soviets countries were breaking up, okay? They were, after what happened was that it shook Mother Russia. But when these countries got independence, when these countries became nation states, they weren't supposed to be dominant. They weren't, their wealth weren't supposed to rival that of the former colonial master wasn't supposed to rival same thing with cuba and these other countries that got independent we weren't supposed to so while the u.s used structural adjustment used debt used the cia or their agents to to penetrate and to invade and to keep other countries down and or to develop or to develop factions between jlp and pnp or you call the people's revolutionary party in grenada whatever the case might be russia today is using coercion while other, the West, other countries are using some kind of sophistication to reassert their dominance. But Ukraine's dominance, Ukraine's growth and development threatens Russia's development, dominance in the region. Okay? And so when we talk about small countries like the Caribbean, smaller countries, and I said to you, when you study in Caribbean, part of uh, the, the approach to studying Caribbean thinking does not must not be done in a vacuum or in isolation of what pertains in the world today, especially that we are talking about globalization. And today is, by the way, today is National Unplugged Day or Global Unplugged Day. Today, do you know? By the way, I, you guys might have heard about that. Today is National Unplugged Day or um, something of the sort. National Unplugged Day or or Global Unplugged Day. And if you know, and if the unplugged day or the unplugged day, they're talking about um, digital technology and streaming. Studies show that average Americans, and we're in America now. I mean, well, I mean, average Americans in the U.S. But I'm, and in Jamaica and in the I don't know what it is like in in the Caribbean. But um, screen time, social media, screen time, is the average American spend at least what they said seven hours per day, something of the sort. But the studies show that over 85% of Americans spend at least 30 minutes on screens, streaming, movies, videos, whatever the case might be. Okay, so we know um, that 
we, we, we are aware of that. So today is supposed to be the national unplug day. People were supposed to plug, unplug. But I said to you, but I, I responded by saying life is about people and how people relate. Life is about people and how people relate, how people communicate. So of course it stands, and what technology does, it speeds up the communicate the relationship. And not only that, especially people that live, especially in the in a world of travel where people are constantly traveling. And the fact that travel, not this is not just te technology has become much more sophisticated to know it has speed up travel, but that speed up communication as well in terms of how we communicate, how we communicate, how we talk to people. It's, it's, so I can be in Jamaica and get and I'm talking to you right now. So they are, so we're talking about there are benefits to to streaming. There's benefits to technology, to, to, to technology. But the fact of the matter is that we. The point I'm making is that we live in a global village, we live in a global world today, where whatever happens in one country affects another country. But especially in the Caribbean, we talk about the Caribbean and Jamaica being a very vulnerable society, open to exogenous shock. Yes? Jamaica and, and especially Jamaica, it's part of the of the Americas. We're part of the Americas. And um, and we talk about and the dominant country in the region is the US. And then we talk about in 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 Eastern Russia, in Eastern Europe, you talk about Russia being a dominant country there, and then you, um, and then uh, you talk about uh, if you go to parts of the the, the in the, the Orient, in Asia, talk about China being a well, China, I guess that's between China and um, and Japan, but everybody, they, they, the the there's this dominant the dominant country, and then there are smaller countries, and so the question is, what these countries, what do they look like? What independence do they have? How can they, how can they chart their own, uh, carve out their own lives? Yes. So I am making this point. The point I'm before, if some of you were just joining us, I'm I'm saying to you, you might be asking, what is the importance of having somebody like a John Castro, a very important figure in American politics? He's uh, he's a known figure. Well, he's not a, he's not the elite, the speaker of the house or whatever. But he's running for um, he's running as a 2024 presidential candidate, and I believe that as Caribbean people, because we we are we are affected significantly by strategy, <laughs> yes, by strategy in the world, and so I say to to you, not only should we just look at what's going on within our local, but we have to have an idea of what's going on in America and in the world. We have to study American politics because American politics affect Jamaica. Yes. Uh, what is happening in the US and the decisions that are made, it also have a bearing. And then we talk about the diaspora. The diaspora, which is also a very important aspect when you uh, aspect of smaller countries and Caribbean. The diaspora plays a very important role. And so therefore it's quite it's we are happy to have um uh, John Castro joining us for the for the class today. And he will be providing us with a lecture. So I was saying that if like he would be your child, uh, that would be first generation, not for instance, not you because you migrated. And so this person, if he had, he is is had been your your offspring, 
That would be first generation. But he was born in the US. So but his parents weren't. His parents are from right. Basically so is what I'm saying. First generation right. American. Right. right. So, that's so that's very important. So that's why we say he's first generation. Um, I believe his parents are from Mexico and um and they served in the military. And he was born on a military base. Um, and this is a guy that lived in Dallas, Texas. And if you follow the if you follow the story about John Castro. It's a very powerful story of someone who worked hard, who took advantage of opportunities to get to where he is in life today. And he took advantage of the opportunities that, and he talks about that. But at, at the same time, he talks about, yes, uh, he might be an example of people who can work hard and get to the next level. So when you talk about countries like Jamaica, why they are not as developed as they ought to be given um, uh, so on and so forth. You people that those who argue that, well, they didn't plug themselves in. They didn't apply themselves um, to, to, to the formula, okay? Or the formula was haphazard uh, or whatever. And we are having various discussions in the class as it, do it, as it relates to what has dogged the Caribbean. Um, so today's class is quite, so when you look, when you look at his story, someone who, who has, um, who is a who is a who is a first generation American who is running for president? Who is a multimillionaire, president of AI Tax, president of Castro and Company, um, running against Donald Trump and um, running for president? That is a great achievement. That's a great a great feat. And that is and one of the reasons why I want to have him is to talk as an example, an example for us as people what we can do um, when um, given irrespective of who we are and our circumstances. Um, we can rise above. But then he will tell you that, yes, there are opportunities, but the opportunities are still far in between. Okay? Um, competition is not fair. Life does is not fair. Life doesn't provide. And of course, there are those who don't. Um, some people have opportunities. Some people are able to escape. So, right. So that's what we're talking about with Hanif. Yes. Sorry, um, what, what did you ask? Sorry, I'm very sorry. Uh, what were you saying, sir? No, I said no. I thought somebody's hand was up. Um, is John Castro is from the lineage of? Oh, oh that's a good question. I will. You know what? I let you ask him. That. You ask him that. <laughs> that, and that means some of you didn't watch my one and a half hour interview that I did with him last year. I did a video interview with him the first time I had him on the show. That was one of the, um, I, we asked about that. And you know what? To be honest, especially if you are from Jamaica and the Caribbean, and you know Jamaica's relationship with Fidel Castro, we're going to probably, that's it. That's, I, I asked him that question. Are you related to Fidel Castro? Okay. But I'm going to let him answer that question. Okay. All right. Let's take a quick um, one second break and then um, and ensure, and let's see if uh, it's now 6 30. He should be joining us. Joining us in a couple of seconds so don't don't go anywhere i by the way i need to see you guys remember we said about this week we want to see everybody's face all right we want to see you guys on the screen this week okay all right um just hold on just a second let me ensure let me contact mr castro real quick see if he has to leave
we are back everybody welcome welcome back to the class guys and john anthony castro the u.s 2024 presidential candidate president of ai Pax, president of castro and company a graduate of georgetown law and he also graduated from business from harvard from harvard with a business certification and we are happy that he is here mr castro welcome to Car to the jamaica theological seminary and to my caribbean thought class welcome sir okay great great and um and i'm going to ask students welcome um those of us who are have our our things muted please let's see your faces so now today today we have with us john as i was saying before john came on we have john with us and we've been talking about american politics and also that as caribbean people we need to be very that we should be very interested in what's going on in the u.s because when america sneezes, we catch a cold okay so we are happy now me and we talked about mr john cat anthony castro and we are happy a first generation um are you a first generation american oh are we are not hearing john hold on oh sorry about that geez yeah i thought you were hearing me this whole time <laughs> uh, i'm one of the yes, students uh, ask if you were first generation uh John, are you there? Guys? Guys? Vote if Trump's not on the ballot. Oh, so, so they don't vote if, if Trump is not on the ballot. And so there's a good chance that if Trump was knocked off the ballot, they would be disillusioned and simply go away. This is the whole reason why the Republican Party fell in love with Trump, is that he got people to vote that never voted before. And so uh, that would be a very big segment of the current voting base that would go out the door. And that small group that I had before, that 5 to 15 percent, would all of a sudden represent anywhere from 25 to 30 percent. And at that point, uh, later in the primaries, you know, again, depending on how soon or how late we were able to to get this ruling and, and have Trump disqualified, uh, it could actually pave a, a path. It would likely end up being a contested primary, but it very much is a there is a very plausible path to the nomination. Now, with that being said, let's assume worst case scenario. Worst case scenario is. I get 10, it turns out that the never Trumpers are 10%, right? And um, if I can carve out that 10%, even 5%, look at the results of the 2020 elections. Look at Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, uh, Arizona, Georgia. They all turned on less than 2% of the vote. So if I can carve out and make that 5% ultra loyal to me, I can effectively control the outcome of the general election because if our 5% decides to cross over and become Biden Republicans, then it's impossible for them to secure victories in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Georgia, um, 
or, or anywhere that matters. Uh, Jason, did you have a question? Yes, sir. Good evening. Yeah, good question. evening. If or when successfully become the next president of the United States of America, is the Caribbean on the top of your agenda for any advantage for the betterment of us in the Caribbean? Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and Mr. Castro, I don't cut you. I was just yeah. going to ask a question similar to that. All right. Um, let me add to that question. All right. As a presidential candidate, you are going to have to formulate a doctrine. All right. The doctrine that you're going to have to formulate and based on what um, my um, classmate asks is um, what type of doctrine are you going to formulate in terms of how we are going to um, deal with the countries in the Caribbean, for example, Jamaica. And um, I say this because um, America has always have control of the Western Hemisphere and the Caribbean. And you might be familiar with the Monroe Doctrine and the um, 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 former president, a former president, I think it was in the 17th or 18th century, I think it was James spoke. Um, he spoke about the doctrine of manifest destiny. All right. What I have seen since of recently is the influence of America, especially in the Caribbean and the English speaking countries, especially Jamaica, have been waning. It seems as if America have been given up on, for example, Jamaica. And I say this because the um, the dominance of the Chinese in the Caribbean and in Jamaica. And I know you are supposed to be familiar with that. With that. The concessions that the Chinese have been getting, it's very astronomical. It seems as if the Chinese have more influence in Jamaica than even America. Right in the backyard of America where um, this is supposed to be America's sphere of influence. You know, so what I'm saying is what is happening with um, the, 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 um, the direction that America has always been taking, where Jamaica and the English-speaking countries in the Caribbean is concerned, because it's like America has given up and is allowing the Chinese to basically take Jamaica, take the other Caribbean countries. It's like it's a new era of neo-colonialism where the colonial master is now going to be the Chinese. So yeah. what is your thoughts on that? I agree. Um, uh, it's, it's unfortunate. Um, I can tell you that what I feel is, is, is lacking here is a, a lot of investment. Um, we need to invest a lot more in our neighbors to the south. You know, it, here you, you constantly hear Republicans whining and complaining about, you know, oh, the border crisis, the border crisis. There's all these migrants coming in. Um, and it makes me incredibly frustrated because, you know, a lot of times I just want to grab them and shake them and be like, have you ever thought to consider why they're coming here? You know, you, you have to, you can't keep treating the symptom. You know, we, we can't, uh, uh, oh, sorry. Um, a, a message popped up on the screen. You know, we, we can't, uh, keep treating the symptom. You know, it's like it's like if my child has a running nose and all I keep doing is, is putting cotton balls, you know, and, and changing it out. Like 
like you're not getting to the source of the problem. And so if you look at the source of the problem, it's it's what's going on in that country. It's either uh, uh, instability. It's, you know, in some areas like, uh, um, you know, in uh, what is it, El Salvador, it's it's uh, excessive amounts of crime and corruption and things. So, you know, when whenever I start talking to Republicans about this and they say like, OK, well, what would you do differently? Uh, I would say, well, I want to lend uh, peacekeeping assistance. And so right away they view that as, oh, so you're a military interventionist. And it's just like, no, 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 no. I mean, it's not military intervention. I mean, there could be potentially involvement with that. But, you know, it, it goes back to blessed are the peacemakers. You know, we we need to bring stability and peace. So you, you can't say, um, you can't complain about the problem, but then not propose a solution. Like, how are we going to solve that? So we, we solve it through funding, you know, uh, so we can either give a lot of funding to Caribbean nations to to assist in uh, providing that uh, stability and that security that that people so desperately crave. But not only that, but the Chinese are simply out innovating us right now. Like there's there's a serious lack of national strategy among our executive leadership in this country. And look, I I, I can tell you that I grew up looking at our leaders and thinking they definitely got their crap together, right? They know what they're doing. But what I've slowly realized is they have no idea what they're doing. Like um, a lot of them just like flat out suck at national strategy. There's no sense of this. And a lot of them just haven't also been in the business world you know, or I've had been in the business world. Like the way I was able to build my firm is I had to out innovate. I had to outsmart my market opponents. And that's how I was able to carve out such a large uh, segment of, of my industry. Um, and that's exactly what the Chinese are doing. It takes one to know one. And I recognize what the Chinese are doing. So they're coming in to these countries and they're realizing that there's a power vacuum. The United States has not invested in uh, Caribbean nations. They've not tried to find ways to assist them in being partners in, in developing their economy. They've not assisted them in providing for stability, whether it's through funding so that they can you know, provide their own security or asking, hey, do you know, do you need UN peacekeeping? You know, uh, is there anything we can do to to try to help the situation? So I am very much of the opinion that a president of the United States is not just the leader of the United States, but of the entire free world. And of course, you know that's that's foreign policy. And my my personal is I I'm not more traditional type, or I would say modern Republican, which is very. Uh, non-interventionist, America first, who cares about what's happening to the rest of the world. Um, every country, every empire, let's be honest, all throughout history that has chosen that path has inevitably crumbled from within. Uh, if you don't realize, and if you and if you don't take serious your role and your steward as the leader of the free world, and you're just like, no, I'm the president of the United States, the United States only, like Donald Trump, then good luck. Good luck, because you know you're not going to hold that position very long. Uh, Hanif and, and Jason have questions again. And by the way, I am sorry. I my computer crashed. I am just logging back on, just so you know. So thank you <laughs> yeah. so much. But you know what? I actually set up the system so that if I get disrupted, it will continue. So that was great. So thanks. I apologize about that. Yes, Hanif. Yes. Um, so, Mr. Thank you, sir, for inviting this honorable and distinguished gentleman on tonight's program class. 
Okay, uh, okay, okay, guys, guys. I if I I need to see your faces when you're speaking, okay? On on yeah, let me see your let me uh, see what you hold on hold on Okay, but go ahead. Well, we would like to see Mr. Castro as well. I know yeah, you yeah, can I'm... see, but we can't. Oh, you can't see screen? No, sir. Oh, you, you can't see me right now? Um, the, the host, Mr. Mr. McKenzie, can't see him. Oh, hmm? can't see him. oh I'm not you sure. can't see Mr. Castro at all. You are the only one that is able to see anyone on the screen, sir. Right. Oh, wow. Oh, wow you have to wow. change your function, sir. So if all of us put yeah, on... Yeah, that's the setup that you have. Right. Oh. So if, we, uh, if I put on my camera, no one else can see me but you. Oh, you're the only one, yeah. Oh, so we can wow. see you. You're the only one that we can see. We can't see anyone else. Okay, I am so that's sorry. Great. All right, let's stop focus mode. Can you see now? Mr. Castro, I'm not sure I'm not seeing him. Okay, that, okay, we'll just continue with where we oh, are. Can, I, can, can you see me now? I think I went on mute. Mm. No, not seeing you. Yes, oh, I have not seen everybody pop up now. Yeah. Yes, yeah. we can okay. see you. Yes, it's okay, okay now. Great. Good. Good. All right. Okay. It was Perfect. on focus mode. So I think that's the reason. Sorry. <laughs> All right. So we are seeing everyone now. Great. So oh. we have a question for Mr. Castro. Okay. Um, well, I see you're putting on a spot, you know. Am I <laughs> There we go. You guys look beautiful. Yes, Eric. Oh, Miss Campbell is the head of the department. And um, Sean Reed is, okay, great. You guys look much better, but okay, great. Hanif and then Jason yes. and then Abdul. All right. So, Mr. Castro, congratulations. I'm excited that I'm speaking to a presidential candidate. Is that so? Yes. Wow. Okay. So, this is an honor. Um, so I am I am one of the very candid individuals on Sir Insert's class on the program. So for American Sir, we are fully aware that whether explicitly or implicitly, you know, there has been a racial issue, there is racial inequality to so to some extent. We are aware of the civil rights movement and pre-civil rights movement, and there is a unification that's going on, but Personally, I have to be careful and can't speak on everybody's behalf. But personally, and for millions worldwide, we're not seeing that it's a thrust. It's an it's a what? We're not seeing that the unification of races from America's platform in, in the nation of America itself is an emphatic thrust. It should be a priority because the peace the, and the, the restoration of America to greatness cannot be the effort of the Caucasians only or the Asians only, the Orientals or the Indians or the, the Negroes. It has to be a collective. It has to be holistic, regardless of who is going to be president, right? And even if it's you, your honorable self, sir, what do you think needs to be done from the constitutional standpoint, not the presidential standpoint? Because, of course, what you do is limited and shackled to some extent by what's written in the Constitution. What do you think needs to be done from the constitutional vantage point to allow America to once and for all have a unification of races in the manner that the Asians and the Africans can be equal in wealth, equal in honor, equal in respect class like the Caucasians? For example, 
the, that the net worth of an of an Indian and a, and a Negro person can be 185 billion, like Jeff Bozos, and that the status and all of the potential of those other ethnic groups can rise to the same level. What can be done from a constitutional standpoint to allow that? And quite a very tough question, just challenging you, sir. What do you think? Do you think that is in the interest of the government of America to have all races equal in America? Well, yeah, okay. So, so we, you know, okay. So let, let me let me start from from the first question, which is what can be done from a constitutional standpoint. Um, so I can tell you right off the bat that what happened in the late '80s, early '90s was the United States Supreme Court invented a concept called qualified immunity, which meant that you, the cop, could, a police officer could do whatever he wanted to. And unless it violated a clearly established right, and that's a, a, a bogus legal word I'll tell you about right now, um, unless he violated a clearly established right, that you had no right to sue him. And so this effectively gave police officers a license to kill, a license to trample over our constitutional rights. And even when they violate clearly established rights like the Fourth Amendment, they say, well, that's not clearly established. Um, it's it's bizarre. We, we have a runaway Supreme Court. So number one, we need to expand the Supreme Court. There's nothing in the Constitution that says there has to only be nine members. So I'd increase that to 13. And I'd put some more centrist-minded people on there, people that believe in fairness, uh, for all, not just, you know, law and order, you know, which is a one-sided system. But we had a constitution that was drafted um, by criminals, right? <laughs> These are guys that, that upped and started a revolution against their government. And so they created all these amendments to put limits on the power of that government. So basically, you're right, you don't have a right to unreasonably search and seize my papers. Um, you don't have the right to force me to testify against myself. Maybe if you think about it, it sounds like they were straight up gangsters, right? Like, like, like writing the law as favorable to criminals as possible. But then what ended up happening is you got a Supreme Court that then wanted to counteract that. Um, and it was during the, the crime surge in the 80s. And so, you know, they used that as, a, as an excuse um, to, to effectively start, start cutting back at that. So that would be rule number one, which is that we need Supreme Court reform. We need Supreme Court justices that actually believe in the rights of the accused and, um, and, and trying to keep all that fair. Uh, Ronaldo, are, are we having any technical issues? Yes, I am. I am gonna leave my, uh, hold on. I'm sorry about that. Can, can everyone hear me? Yes, yes sir, we can hear you. Okay, okay good. all right, I'll continue. Um, so, so that's gonna be the number one reform. Now, uh, another thing that's needed is uh, if I could personally draft a few new provisions to the U.S. Constitution, one of the things that I would waive is what's called the doctrine of sovereign immunity. To me, it is the biggest scam ever pulled by the federal judiciary. Sovereign immunity basically says that the government cannot be sued unless it gives permission to be sued. The, the concept is ridiculous. It contradicts the Mayflower. It contradicts every writing of our founding fathers, which is that if a federal agent uh, or any law enforcement tramples on your rights or abuses you in any way, shape, or form, you have the right to sue them. But right now, you could literally be punched in the face by an FBI agent, and there is literally nothing you could do about it. 
like literally nothing. Um, you know, and if it did, if you even had maybe a federal tort claim or something, it would take four years before you got a $5,000 check to cover half your medical expenses. So it's, it's absolutely outrageous, but that to me directly conflicts with also the first amendment, you know, right to petition yeah. the federal judiciary to redress grievances. And, um, and it has to do with what's called the right to a remedy. Um, a lot of scholars at Georgetown, constitutional law professors have written on this, that what the founding fathers actually meant was that you had a constitutional right to a remedy. But what they said is, uh, no, we don't view it that way. You have a constitutional right to basically write a letter to your congressman. That's, that's not a remedy. You know what I mean? Uh, and so there, to me, those, those create inherent uh, just conflicts. And also we need to apply the 14th Amendment equal protection to, to the federal government as well. Uh, so that whenever there's discrimination, whether it's at the federal or state level, that that we can enforce that. You know, we need whistleblower protection as well for people that file complaints against law enforcement agents. You know, it when the cornerstone of equality is accountability. You can't oh, wow. achieve equality without accountability. And so when somebody knows that they are not accountable, that, that they can treat you like like you're a second class citizen and there's nothing you can do to hold them accountable then there's no equality so uh, the prerequisite to equality is accountability mm. and the federal judiciary has very cleverly used uh the doctrines of qualified immunity sovereign immunity all these immunities right uh, immunity yeah. equals injustice that that's that's number 1 and so we need to abolish those. If we abolish those, we can start holding law enforcement accountable, government officials accountable. And when you start holding them accountable, they'll start treating you equally. And we saw that, right? We have, we saw it in the 1950s and 60s. Third Good Marshall was going for the NAACP and he was signing people up left and right, you know, to, to hold government agents accountable. And what did they do? Um, they tried to go after, and by the way, Third Good Marshall ended up becoming uh, a United States Supreme Court justice. And what did they do? They, they passed laws that said, oh, you're not allowed to directly solicit clients anymore um, because that, that looks bad on the legal profession. It's like ambulance chasing. And he was like, this isn't ambulance chasing. I'm chasing people that literally got beat up by police. Yes, officers. yes, like, yes, yes. Different. Um, right, that's and, true. and we're not doing it for profit. I'm, I'm part of a nonprofit. And so they're always going to do that under the guise, of, under the color of law, right? They make it seem like, yeah. oh, no, we're just trying to regulate the practice of law. Oh, we just, we, we don't want, you know, police officers being sued and second guessed for all their judgments. No, what they're trying to do is they're trying to destroy accountability because they want to indirectly attack equality. And that is the direct reform that you can make within the legal system to achieve and facilitate uh, the accomplishment of what we're going for, which is, which is equality. And there needs to be more, not only equality with regard to government treatment, but there also needs to be stricter rules with regard to the discrimination when it comes to to everything. I, I, I'm pretty sure some of you have read about this, but in case you haven't, um, I'll explain the background. They they did a uh, and this was just last year, last year they had uh, uh, the same house. They had an appraiser come in with a black family in the home, and they did an appraisal on the home, and the home came out appraised to about two hundred twenty five thousand. So they hired. Uh, another appraiser to come in and this time they changed it with actors that were a white family and the home was then valued at $315,000. And so it was very clear that there was a bias. Now they tried this with multiple appraisers and each time there was a, an extreme difference 
in what the appraiser came back as the valuation of the home. And so there are situations like that that they say, oh, well, that, that can't be addressed, right? I mean, that's just societal discrimination. I mean, you know, we can't regulate the appraiser. And, and no, you can't. You just don't want to put in the intellectual effort to identify a way to create more objective standards in these types of professions that can, again, result in areas becoming economically depressed because the valuations are depressed. And then those valuations are needed, right, for funding schools based on property taxes. And and, and it just results, it's just a, a perpetual effect. So I would say that, I would say this, I have studied the system and I know how much the system tries to whitewash itself and make it look like Yes. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, everything's above board. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, we're trying to promote equality. No, you're not. You need to watch the movie. If you haven't watched it, watch the movie The Banker by Samuel. Have you seen it? Banker with Samuel L. Jackson? Yes. That, yes, that is a yes. very clear case. Again, of even how the Federal Reserve was in on it, where they were very the, – these white supremacists, they uh, say they're, they're a lot better at hiding it, but they get into these very high, powerful positions – and they don't make their racism known. You know what I mean? You know, they, they, have, they have their hoods tucked away under their bed. You'll never know. But they are very carefully looking at the legal system and trying to identify how do I keep these people oppressed? How do I keep them without wealth? How do I keep them powerless? And they are very carefully drafting these laws and building an infrastructure. And sometimes judges don't even know. They buy the, the BS whitewashed argument. And, uh, oh, yeah, that's right. We need to give, you know, law enforcement more resources, you know, that so they can take on the crime. And, and uh, that's why we need qualified immunity. But they don't realize the very real, the very white supremacist agenda that's behind this. So, you know, to, to answer your question, um, yes, I have studied this very carefully because I want to know day one, I know what to do. I can hit the ground running. You know, I, I, too many times I see people take the presidency and I feel like the first few days they're, they're probably just recovering from the campaign. And to me, it's just like, like, no, I mean, I, whatever 365 is times four, that's, those are the only days I have. Let's just call it 1200. I got 1200 days to make change happen. I am not, I, I I'm, I'm going to have gray hair and bags under my eyes within one year because <laughs> yes. I, I would be hesitant to even want to sleep with knowing that I have such a limited amount of days to try to change the, the course of not only this country, but the entire world. Great, thank you so much. And uh, thank you, thank you. It's, and it's quite interesting that you mentioned film because, and, um, and hiding, and because I've been talking to the students about strategy, the importance of strategy in the Caribbean as people, as, and as young Jamaicans and so on, the importance of strategy. And we talked about watching film, life and death. And Mr. Castro just referenced, um, alluded to uh, the movie, The Banker, and talked about things being done in secret. And we talk about how revolutionary documentary films are. And when you watch film, it helps to unearth the hidden truth of, and then I ask you, how does it purport truth? So on and so forth. But this is important. And please watch The Banker. So thank you. Yeah. So, and we, But quite powerful. You said something quite powerful. You said, and I want to ask you about NAFTA. This is very important because we, one of the things we talk about in this class is the North American Free Trade Agreement, which, and when you watch the film Life and Death, they reference to that. NAFTA has significantly affected Caribbean people. And President Bill Clinton tried to explain it and tried to make it look good, but 
NAFTA has really affected Caribbean. And um, and I have a question for you, but I want the students to really dig deep and ask questions. But I want to ask you, if you become president, how what are you what policies are you going, what kind of policies would you have for the Caribbean? And and knowing that, say, for example, NAFTA was reauthorized. But and I celebrated NAFTA when it was reauthorized. I said, yes, great, they're reauthorizing NAFTA, but it, they only reauthorize it to strengthen American advantages, not necessarily. So I wanted to ask you about international trade and Jamaica and the Caribbean has you know benefited, has not has been affected by international trade and by NAFTA, you know. But uh, but that's one take question on the table. But I don't want to. I want the students to fit, get their question out first, and then if you can answer that question about what would you do differently as it relates to NAFTA, if you're familiar familiar with that, an international trade or something of the sort. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. So Jason and then Abdul. And by the way, we are streaming live, and wherever you are, thousands of people are listening to this stream all over the world. Okay. And if you're, this is I am Ronaldo McKenzie, and we are at the Jamaica Theological Seminary. And we have with us in our Caribbean Thought class, the U.S. 2024 presidential candidate, Republican, John Anthony Castro, an international law and legal scholar, a multimillionaire, um, first or second generation American who has worked his, from, from the ground up. And, um, and, and we have allowed him to come to talk with the student and to talk with the world about his platform and American politics and for the students to pick his brain since we are dealing with Caribbean thought. So Jason and then Abdul. Yes, sir. Good evening again. Good evening. What I realized yeah. then, I don't know if the word is correct, but I realized that the Americans would have deceived Jamaican in respect of the IMF deals and um, cause our dollars to slide, cripple our imports and uh, our export and all that. What do you think of bringing up CM and see if it's gonna be a better if it's gonna be better for us because farmers can import their goods on a larger scale and all that because currently we are doing little of that. What can you say on that, sir? Okay, so so uh, can can you repeat the question one more time? Okay, sir. So I asked the question that America would have crippled our farming produce to be exported to your country due to the IMF deal and cause our dollars to slide drastically, even though I realize that the US dollar is so high to just one of our dollars. So if you become the president. Would you see it fit to let our dollar have more value to the US, to the US dollar and um, to import more goods from us in your country? No. Uh, yeah, I mean, the answer is definitely yes. And, you know, again, kind of going back to, to what we had discussed before about the banker, um, you know, the movie with Samuel L. Jackson about the banker, it, it discusses a lot about what U.S. banks, just private U.S. banks, were doing behind the scenes to try to uh, reinforce white supremacy. And I can tell you right now that the World Bank and the IMF, they took that business model from the 1960s and they took it global. So I am very suspect of anything the IMF and the World Bank does uh, 
there, if you really study it closely, there's a lot of policy there that seems to suggest it's it's effectively institutionalized white supremacy. So um, yes, absolutely, I would do what is best for uh, both the United States and the Caribbean. And if it requires more importation, then we'll pursue more importation. Uh, you know, this is an area, of course, that is very protectionist when it comes to farming, right? Because U.S. farmers don't want to have to compete uh, with the uh, foreign importation. But, uh, you know, again, it, at the end of the day, what matters is what's best for all the American people and American consumers. And American consumers have the right to an option. You know, everybody, what I always joke about re Republicans and, and capitalists is everybody's Republican and capitalists until they have to deal with competitors. And then they start crying that they don't want to have to deal with, uh, you know, free market capitalism. <laughs> and so it's just like, uh, I don't think there should be any carve out. I don't think there should be any exceptions. You know, if you have a high quality product, you're an American farmer, then be proud of that. Stand behind it. Promote what makes your product better. But don't come running to free market Republican capitalists and ask us to uh, institute uh, protectionist policies. Uh, that that is not that's not republicanism. That's not conservatism. That's not capitalism. Uh, that's nothing that we stand for. So it's always perplexed to me. But you know, we all know why why it's done, right? Because you know the the red states carry a, a lot of influence in the presidential elections. You know, in some states, you if you promote foreign importation of farm goods, then uh, you know you can kiss those states goodbye. But uh, but no, like I said, you know, I I want to. I want to promote competition. To me, competition brings out the best. And um, and so, yeah, absolutely. I, I would definitely explore, you know, increasing the amount of, of importation of, of farm products to, to help the, the Caribbean market, you know, and it would also be up to, again, the American consumer to decide, you know, if, if you have product A from Idaho and you have product B from the Caribbean, well, then may the best product win, you know? And if, if that means that, uh, you know, that's that's going to encourage the, the Idaho farmer to, hey, well, if people are choosing to buy that good instead, then, again, you need to increase the quality of your product or, or find a way to market it better. But uh, I don't believe in uh, in, in protectionism. And uh, and absolutely, I would do what's what's best for, you know, international trade. So you, uh, if I may ask, sir, you, you're thinking of opening up a free market then? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, within, uh, you know, it, it depends, but, uh, but, but yeah, definitely free market, you know, and you, you are going to have, you know, the, the short term effect, you know, because uh, everybody's, a lot of people tend to focus on the very short term and you need to be focused on the short term, but you also need to be focused on the long term. Right. And so, you know, introducing foreign competition is certainly going to hurt the, the U.S. economy, but what it's going to do initially there's going to be some harm but what it's going to do it's going to force the american consumers uh to to increase their product or, or like i said increase the quality of of their product and so at the end of the day the american consumer will win and yes there, there's going to be uh you know these organized interest groups that that represent farmers that are not going to like that they're going to be fiercely opposed to it um and Look, when you're in politics, you have to have thick skin. You know, you you have to know that if you take one position, you're you're going to lose a certain amount of votes, right? Um, and so you just have to stand for what you stand for, and you have to you have to just stand your ground, and you're going to lose some votes along the way. But uh, 
But ultimately, if enough people believe in your vision, they're they're going to stand behind you. Oh, uh, Ronaldo, you're on uh, mute. Oh, that's a powerful response. Um, um, thank you. And he talked about some people. You know, we talk about globalization, and um, as Caribbean islands became independent in in the nineteen sixties. And we are faced with the oil crisis in 1970, and then of course we have to. They have Caribbean had to borrow money um, because of the um, balance of payment issue. Now, how did we get the balance of payment issue? That's the question. So that we have to now go to IMF. I'm so that sorry, the Caribbean has to go to the IMF or some Caribbean island. That's that's a different question. But as it relates, but what I like, what I'm hearing is talk about free market and strategy. Um, Mr. Castro is saying that, of course. Um, any American president wants to sell America, they want American product to be sold. But, you know, the American president is also leader of the free world. Yes. And, um, and he talks about being fair. And um, we talk, when we talk about free markets, and I think part of the problem, you know, if we are going to put, if Americans are going to promote um, free market in the world and free market here, but it has to be fair. But that's, what does that look like? But he looks like a guy that is really, who is, who is going to be promoting those kind of purist intention policies? <laughs> but Jay Abdul. Okay. Um, first, I'd like to ask a rhetorical question, and then I'll go into who a rhetorical I'd like to answer. Um, okay, a, a rhetorical question. Okay, let me yeah. do that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, first, um, Mr. Mackenzie, you talk, you spoke about strategy, and yes, um, Mr. Castro, that's very um, important. Right. Mr. Castro spoke about the Constitution. The rhetorical okay. question is, Mr. Castro, why is slavery still legal in the United States of America? And as a lawyer, I say this. <laughs> okay. The 13th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States states that neither slavery nor invol involuntary servitude, servitude except as a punishment of a crime whereof the party have been duly convicted of shall exist within the United States or any um, place subject to their jurisdiction. So what this is saying, if a person is convicted of a crime, then they can be placed into slavery, right? That is what the Constitution, the 13th Amendment to the Constitution is saying. Wait, wait, hold me. on, hold on. You, for, hold on, um, Abdul, you, yes. you, can't, you, are, you are interpreting the Constitution as a Jamaican. You're interpreting no, no, he's, 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 he's correct. He's correct, right? Okay. I'm correct. Yeah, yeah. So he's correct. I, All right, go ahead. I like that. Yeah, that's what the, <laughs> okay. that's what the Constitution says. Not me interpreting it. You know, it's yeah, plain, okay. direct, and exact. And um, what happened is um, right after slavery, as you know, um, there are the slave codes. A lot of states, southern states, came up with the slave codes where mm. um, like loitering, vagrancy, um, certain petty offense they turned it into a crime for the mere fact that um, they said um, slavery was um, abolished, but yet still like the slaves coming off the plantation, they didn't have any resources, no land, no nothing at all. So um, they were just there. So mm. um, I guess the framers of this 13th Amendment realized um, that we can recriminalize and redefine slavery by making certain petty offenses criminal so we could arrest these people and then based on how the um the the, the 13th amendment was written and is interpreted okay, we can put them back 
into slavery. Yeah. And that, that's okay. what's happening. happening then, even up until now. And um, the descendants of slaves, Black American, what have been happening? Black Americans only make up 13% of the population of the United States, but yet still they are disproportionately arrested, profiled, targeted, killed um, more than any other else um, 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 race or, or um, ethnic, ethnicity in the United States of America, you know? Uh, the, 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 the private prison, the, the private prison boom, the private prison explosion. This is coming out of the 13th Amendment of the Constitution of the United States, you know? Yep. And then a presidential, um, 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 uh, a, a former president, Bill Clinton, in um, 1994 and 1996. What did he do? He came up with the crime bill. And the crime bill disproportionately targeted Black, black Americans. You know, mm -hmm. and um, it decimated the Black American family, family structure. You know, until this day, um, the Black family structure cannot recover, and it not only affected the Black family structure, it affected immigrants from the Caribbean like us. Because um, what happened with um, those two um, um, Bill that he championed? It criminalized a lot of petty offenses. So um, you have people that um, migrated to the United States were green card holders because of those petty offenses, they were deemed deportable, you know? So it decimated the Caribbean um, community, it decimated the black community, and it is still causing chaos even until now, you know? And this is coming from the 13th Amendment. So Mr. Castro, as a, as a lawyer, I know you know the constitution, why is slavery still legal in the United States of America through trickery? Chicanery and canivery. And yeah, what would you be doing as yeah, a, I, a, a presidential candidate if you would um, um, champion the, um, a change in the constitution, a constitutional amendment to remove yeah. that from off the book? And the final question I'd like to ask you, are you a friend of Ted Cruz? <laughs> I, I'm not a friend of Ted Cruz. <laughs> okay. So the rule, so number one, number one is federal legislation to abolish the privatization of prisons at both the federal and the state level. Now, some people say, oh, you can't do that. You can't abolish at the state level. We, we can. What we can do is we can threaten to pull all funding, uh, all federal funding to a state if they don't abide by it. So if a state like Mississippi or Alabama didn't want to abide by that rule that they can't have private prisons within their jurisdiction, then they lose all federal funding. So that's number one. We get private prisons out of the way because you're absolutely private prisons. And then what private prisons even do to make it worse is anything that you do, um, like petty offenses, they extend your time. So they can you, you can end up getting sentenced for two years and stay for five years. And the thing is, is that it's a private company. So they have every reason to find BS excuses to say, oh, that was an infraction. Now you're getting another three months. Now you're getting another two months. Now you're getting another five months. And there are people that were only supposed to go for two years that end up staying five years. It's absolutely ridiculous. And you're absolutely right. Like I remember it was in the late nineties and I was in North Carolina. And I remember that my, for the first time, my parents had to explain to me what racism was because I saw a news episode where it showed uh, prison guards on horseback in a cotton field with a bunch of black inmates that were literally picking cotton and somebody had caught it on a camera and it became a big deal. And that was actually my the first time that I was exposed to the fact that slavery actually wasn't abolished. And that if you read the 13th Amendment carefully, 
you could be still effectively turned into a slave by them basically leveraging the legal system to find some something you did wrong. Um, so num number one to me is, is I have long stood against the privatization of prisons because there can only be two policy objectives when it comes to prisons. You either there, they either exist to reform the person and make them into a productive member of society again, or you just throw that out the window and say, screw it, let's just exploit them as much as we can and make money off of them. And that's the route that they've chosen with private prisons. It's screw it, they're non we can't rehabilitate them. Let's just monetize the hell out of them and basically make them into, into modern day slaves. Um, so no, we need to take the financial incentive out of that and we need to abolish private prisons all throughout the United States. And so, yeah, you can imagine right now, every shareholder of the Correctional Corporation of America is not going to vote for me. <laughs> and I don't care. I don't want their vote um, at, at all. I would not even, I would never want their vote. Uh, and you're absolutely right with the crime bill. Um, you know, unfortunately, in retrospect, Clinton has expressed remorse for that. Um, but it's just like too late. I mean, it, it's like, man, you're the president of the United States. You're the leader of the free world. Like, we don't want to hear you like, oh, I didn't have time to think about that or my mistake. It's just kind of like, then, then this is sometimes what we, this is sometimes the downside of democracy, of just electing people based on popularity and not my merit and intelligence and what they're actually capable of accomplishing. Um, but, but yeah, absolutely. You know, you have to really think not about, and this is, this goes back to what I was discussing before about short-term goals versus long-term goals, right? They passed the crime bill because there was a sudden surge in crime. And so they freaked out. They just wanted to deal with something. So let's just find an extreme legislation. And okay, there, it, 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 stopped, it brought down the crime. But geez, think about the generational impact that that had on the communities that were disproportionately impacted, which, of course, if you take the chain off of law enforcement, what do you think they're going to do? And so, yeah, this had a, a devastating impact on the African-American community in the United States. And, uh, and I don't even want to call it that because it's just the black American uh, community because I feel like that's more encompassing. But uh, but yeah, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm definitely against that. And, and I will go a step further. And I've said this already publicly. I am in support of reparations. That's, and that's a, that's a big deal because I feel that we will never, ever cure the sin of slavery and racism without reparations. And it very much is possible. Uh, and, and it's not like, uh, you know, how some people envision it, you know, not everybody's just going to get a $5,000 check in the mail one day. That's, that's not going to solve it. Even if everybody got a $10,000 check in the mail, that's not going to solve it. What I prefer is giving people the power to help themselves. And there was an idea that was floated. A lot of people don't know this. There was an idea that was floated in the week before Lincoln was assassinated. Lincoln was in favor of reparations. And when people found out about that, it didn't take more than one week before he had a bullet in the back of his head. And same thing happened to Kennedy, too, when he started talking about civil rights. It didn't take too long before he had a bullet in the back of his head. I don't care if that happens to me. I'm going to speak the truth. And I believe in reparations. And I believe that those reparations should come in the form of five to 10 acres of federal land given here, to here. every descendant, <laughs> yeah, of, every descendant here, here. of slavery. Yes, yes. And, and back then, it, what was being floated around the, uh, around the time of Lincoln was 
uh, I think, what did they call it? An acre and a mule or something like that. You know, oh, basically the idea. And a mule. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what was it again? 10 acres? Uh, the 40 acres and a mule. 40 acres and a mule, correct. correct. So I am very much, and so obviously not a mule, it would be a tractor or something, you know, but the idea is that you would get land and you would have the means to cultivate that land. And so that would mean, uh, and, and the thing is, is that a lot of people don't know this. The, it's called, and coincidentally, it's called BLM, the Bureau of Land Management. <laughs> but isn't it? Uh, but uh, the Bureau of Land Management is sitting on hundreds of thousands of acres of federal land. And I believe that that land can be put to good use by distributing it to the descendants of slavery in the United States. And everybody could get the means, whether it's a, tra I'm not familiar with farming, but whether it's a John Deere tractor, whatever it is, the idea is that you would get land, you'd get a home and you'd get a tractor. And now you have the means to cultivate that land. And that's, that's the first step to generational wealth, which is home and land ownership. And I believe that that is the one way to counteract everything that the financial system has done for the last 250 years to keep Black Americans in the United States economically depressed is to get that land, distribute it back to the people. And if nothing's done with the land, then there's no excuse at that point. But I know that people would use that land and there would be a huge change. There'd be a sudden transfer of wealth to Black Americans in the United States in the form of very valuable land that they could cultivate. They could come together in communes and different types of co-ops and and completely dominate the American farming industry. And that is something that I would definitely very, very strongly support. Oh, nice. So Thank about, you so uh, much. One second, um, answer my follow-up question. What about a constitutional amendment to remove the 13th Amendment from the Constitution so um, slavery can be officially abolished? Yes. No, will not happen. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, I mean, for those the, the, it's, yeah. it would be, I, I don't think it would be difficult, you know, like normally a constitutional amendment is, uh, you know, sometimes referred to in politics as like, you know, oh, that's, that's extremely unlikely, it's highly improbable, but not in this case, you know, if we went after something like, you know, what they call low hanging fruit here, which is just let's, let's amend the 13th amendment just to remove that last sentence, there should be no room or no avenue to achieve slavery uh, in the United States, I would Yes, I believe yes. that there, any state legislature that opposed ratifying that amendment, I, I think, would be very hard pressed to to defend the the morality of their opposition. And Abdul, and for those of us who are listening and the students who are not familiar with the the 13th Amendment, I am going to push back on Abdul. The U.S. slavery has been abolished in the U.S. You're trying to you're trying to be a, you're being a troublemaker because you're in a separate. No, no, listen to what I'm saying. No, 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 no. Listen, I'm being, I'm being provocative. Slavery has been abolished in the U.S. However, you are a troublemaker. I mean, that's what they say. That's the, that's listen to what I'm saying. Or you are a critical thinker, a troublemaker. Or you are a critical thinker. Yes, because because now you're looking at this. Now you are thinking in terms of what? In terms of the S word. What did I talk about? Strategy. Yes. Mm -hmm. Strategy. So yeah. it's slavery is made, I mean, slavery is abolished, but, but then they added a caveat. The a caveat poses a problem because you talk about petty, then you talk about petty crimes and some of the things. So, and, and then of course, who the has loophole. the right? A loophole, you call it, loopholes. 
and many people don't study the law and so on. So it's quite interesting that you that you should you should bring that up. So for this class and for people who are listening, guys, we're not saying that to you. We're not making a charge against the U.S. The Jamaican Theological Seminary, Ronaldo McKenzie, Caribbean <laughs> Thought. We are not making any accusation saying that the U.S. Um, continues to be a country that has allowed for slavery. No, we're not saying that they are against it. But what we are what we are challenging, what pushing back is saying that we are noticing that there is a loophole. There is an avenue for slavery to rear its head or through strategy. The crime that are committed, who commits most of the crime? You talk about how many, how, I mean, talk about black people are free, but then most of them commit most of the crimes and they're back in jail and, and they can be, and they can be, and you can, you can um, apply forced labor. Talk about slavery is forced, a part of slavery is forced labor. So I, I see what you're saying, Abdul, but I want to push back so that we, as a class, people living or listening all over the world, I want people to know that we're not saying that the U.S. has not abolished it, but we're saying is that there are loopholes or caveats and so on. Okay. <laughs> okay, I understand. I understand, sir. Okay. Yeah. All right. Perfectly understood. All right. Thank you. Now, I mean, I don't know. Can you stay for another fifteen minutes? And um, Mr. Castro, I, I mean, I know we said until yeah. seven thirty. The students are loving the class, and some of you have quite Sean. Sean, I saw your text. Sean, is Sean here? Sean Reed. Sean yes, text. Yes, sir, what do you here, mean? Why do you say that? Why did you text that just now? I saw your text saying that they said that Mr. Castro, you your platform is amazing, but they, they're not gonna vote for you. It's too good. You're <laughs> Explain sir, yourself, collaborate. Sir, um, when you when you when you study a little bit of American history, you realize that much of the constitutional laws are really set up for those who are quote-unquote Americans to continuously survive and everybody else would have to build America from the ground up. So those who are at the top remains at the top. So, mm -hmm. I, so the, 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 the strategy is good, the idea is good, but those who are at the top, and, and if mentioned it earlier, that even though he's the face of America, there's some amount of shackles on him in terms of to get certain things done. And those who are above him are those who hold those shackles. And I don't think they would want America to, to, to be open in such a way where those who are at the top, you know, would consider to be equal to those who are underneath them according to their thoughts. So that's why I made the statement. Oh yeah, when yeah, absolutely. They, but uh, you, but when what, he said they, who are you talking about? They, who is they? The people at the top. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Sorry, Sir, no, I'm the people at the top. Oh, we don't need to divulge who those people are. Oh, we, we know. Right. We know. Yeah. From, we know right. who the they dominant, are. The dominant class. I want you to use yeah, the language. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, I told uh, you use the language. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean the, the the good thing. So Sean, you pointed out a good point. You know, uh, which it's it, it's inherent in human nature. You know, if you're on top, you you want to maintain that position and right. you're going to do everything in your power to economically depress others. And, uh, and, and you, you want to do that to maintain your position. Um, there's a lot of different tools that can be utilized. Um, one of the tools that, uh, that was previously utilized uh, is the estate tax. So the estate tax was designed to level the playing field. You know, when, before Bush came into office, the 
uh, exemption was capped at uh, $2 million. And then Bush came in, increased it to five, and then increased it to 10. Uh, and then Trump, Trump came in and it got increased to, to now $22 million. You know, So what, what's happening here is you're, you're allowed to transfer this massive amount of wealth to the next generation. And, uh, and, and that's not fair. You know, some, some idiot kid is going to inherit $100 million from, from his father. And, uh, and you're supposed to be able to compete with that. Uh, you know, luckily, like I said, I was able to really study the law. And when I founded my firm, I was able to find ways to, to build my firm. But it wasn't without enemies. I, I had people try to come after me and literally trying to frame me for crimes uh, in the past um, because they wanted to try to use the legal system to basically shut me down. Um, so, so yeah, not only would they not vote for me, I've had people that literally tried to put me in prison. And, uh, you know, I, I want to believe that they were just competitors that, that were very overzealous. Um, but the more I looked into their background, the, the more there were elements of white supremacy. So again, you know, it's, it's the fact that they don't like seeing a, a successful brown man. They don't like seeing successful black men. Um, if you don't have white skin, they don't want to see you successful. And so you're going to have people like that within, uh, within the system that are always, you know, going to be trying to, uh, to do that. So, uh, it's, it's unfortunate, but, uh, you know, a, a black man steals a hundred dollars and can end up with a police officer putting his knee on his neck and, and, you know, literally suffocating him to death and, a white banker steals $300 million from American taxpayers and he gets a bailout from Congress and a bonus. It's the system's unfair. And, uh, and we have to look into those, uh, what, what's wrong with, with the system and, uh, and, and fixing it from within, you know, there, there, a lot of people will say, Oh, these are societal issues. There's, there's nothing we can do about it, but, uh, but th there is, there is. And again, it comes down to, accountability. The, the way that we fight back against this is studying the system, understanding it, uh, knowing where it came from. And why do you think they're so uh, against CRT, right? The CRT is the boogeyman for them, critical race theory. What critical race theory does is it studies white supremacy and how it's been institutionalized. It, it looks at movies like The Banker. Look at how you, you guys really need to watch the movie The Banker if you haven't already. Like Watch it this weekend. They went to great efforts to shut this down. They tried to stop Samuel L. Jackson from making this movie. There's a reason for that. And it's because they don't want you to know how they've rigged the system. So uh, it starts by with, with studying it. And the genesis of that are those critical race theory classes, understanding how people have, have abused the system and rigged the system uh, against people of color. And, uh, and I say people of color generally because it applies to Hispanics, applies to, to Asians, applies to everybody that doesn't have uh, and share, you know, their European dominant, you know, descent and, and genetic makeup. So, uh, yes, absolutely. Oh, uh, you're on mute, Ronaldo. Wrap up in a few, but um, somebody have questions. What are your views on gun policy? And the questions are rolling in. And one, but somebody wants to ask, what are your views on gun policy? Who was that that asked that question? Somebody wanted to know your views on gun policy. And then, so. Sir, that was me. And, and I asked okay. the question because he mentioned the whole idea of peace initiative um, earlier. 
and the okay. whole idea of peace initiative goes against um the, the 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 policies that are in in US as it relates to their guns, and we we must bear in mind that it's also an a, a revenue for them as well. So how do we take the, um the whole idea of gun policies into consideration with the 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 the, the idea of pre, um peace treaty, given that they're somewhat antithetical? So yeah, so. I will, I will state my my position on this very carefully because it's, it's actually an issue and a topic that I've researched extensively. Um, so I will say this. Firearms are the source of our freedom. That's my personal belief. Now, so the Second Amendment begins by stating a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state, the right of people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Well regulated. What the founding fathers were effectively saying is an armed populace is the surest way to protect against an encroaching federal government. But we can't have a bunch of idiots running around with guns, right? It needs to be well regulated. So well regulated means that you need to be a responsible firearm owner. So we can actually condition gun ownership on taking training lessons taking safety lessons, taking shooting lessons. Like you need to pass all these qualifications before you can take that gun home, right? Uh, other than that, it's kind of like in the military, you know, like you don't get to take your firearm home. You know, you can use it for the training, but until you've proven yourself worthy, we're not going to let you just like walk out of the armory with that gun. And so that's what the founding fathers were effectively saying. So this idea in America that we have that anybody can walk in at the age of 18 and into a store uh, like Bass Pro Shop and walk out with a murderous rampaging weapon like an ar-15 just because they've never been convicted of a crime <laughs> it's to me it's it's bizarre it's a lunacy um now i will tell you this i own two ar-15s i also own two glocks um i i i love weapons and once a month i'll go to the shooting range i like it i like training to me it's no different than living in the 1500s and having a sword under your bed and once a month training with that sword. I hope to God, I really do hope to God that I never have to use it. But I want to know that if push comes to shove and I have to, I know how to use it. Because, you know, what makes a person moral and, and where, where that morality comes from is that you have the ability to use these weapons, but you hope that you don't have to and hopefully you go through your life and you never have to. Like I said, you know, it's no different than, than a, a citizen having a sword under, under their bed in the 1500s. He hopes that he never has to use it, but he needs to be prepared on how to use it. And also, you know, again, we would have never had the American Revolution had it not been for firearms. And the whole concept behind the Second Amendment is to have firepower equal to that of regular infantrymen in that are employed by the federal government. So back then it was muskets. Today it's AR-15s. So I do believe that there is a constitutional right to own assault weapons, but but heavily, heavily regulated. So by that, I mean that there should be an exception that uh, th this whole, uh, I forgot what it's called, but privacy, that should not apply. Like if you're gonna, if you're trying to purchase an AR-15 that can shoot 36 rounds in six seconds, and potentially kill 30 people in the blink of an eye. I need to know if you're on medication as a and suffering from schizophrenia or some sort of an issue. And, and it's not to stigmatize that person, right? Like I have family members that have mental health issues, but I wouldn't want them to own a firearm. 
you know, like I sympathize with their, with their, you know, struggle with mental health. But at the same time, I don't support your right to own an AR-15. I sure as hell don't want you having 10,000 rounds under your bed and, and multiple firearms. So I believe in very extensive background checks. Um, I believe in mental health checks. I believe in red flag laws. I believe, I believe that you can't even buy a firearm until you've proven that you know how to use the goddamn weapon. You know, and if you can't show me that you know how to disassemble, you know how to how to how to uh, when the when a, one of the rounds are. I I did military training at West Point, so I know this. You know, if one of the rounds gets stuck, if you don't know how to dislodge that properly, you, you have no business. You could end up killing your own kid, and that happens a lot. So, so that being said, um, I am a fierce supporter of the Second Amendment because I do believe that the only real power comes from the barrel of a gun, and that is ultimately what secures our freedoms from government uh, intrusion and government encroachment. However, I also, and this is the part where I disagree fiercely with my Republican colleagues, I also fiercely support the well-regulated nature of that right. So I do support red flag laws. I do support extensive background checks. I am against the loopholes of the gun shows where anybody can walk into a gun show and walk out again with a freaking AR-15. We don't know anything about that 19-year-old or what kind of issues that he's going through at home. Um, you know, there's 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 a lot of issues. So so that being said, I, I do support the Second Amendment. But again, I am a big believer in the opening sentence, a well-regulated militia. And by militia, they simply meant an armed, an armed citizen. And so what they're basically saying there is an armed population. It needs to be well-regulated. And that's that's not what we're seeing right now. Um, and, and just this is this is for your own uh, personal research. But Look back at every mass shooting that has existed since Columbine in 1998, and you'll see that those kids were on some form of antidepressants. So there, there also is a big issue in this in this country with the lack of regulation of medication, right? Because they're not concerned about uh, the collateral damage that, that that's resulting from their products. They put these products out without proper testing. And uh, and then when you the, the withdrawal symptoms can be pretty disastrous as we've seen. But I actually did a study into that one time, and I found out that almost nine out of every ten shootings since Columbine were traceable back to antidepressants. And that's not to say that if you take antidepressants, you're going to go on a mass shooting. But it's there, there needs to be laws dealing with purchasing a weapon while that person is on that. And I think that's for everybody's safety, the the the, the person's safety as well as everybody around him. So there, there needs to be a very frank talk about this. But the problem is that th there's this big divide between the two, right? I mean, it's, it's like if you support gun rights, then in a lot of places in New York where, where I talk about this, the walls go up. They don't want to hear from me. Um, and they're just like, no, no, you're, you're a right-wing nut job. You, you support guns. You own guns. And, and I don't want to hear from you. But when they start hearing how much I support regulation of it, they start realizing like, oh, okay. And, and it, that just doesn't exist right now in American politics, that you support the Second Amendment, but you also support red flag laws. Like people get confused and it's like a robot malfunctioning. And it doesn't make sense to them. <laughs> but uh, but but that that is my my gun policy. Oh, Ronaldo, you're on mute. Thank you so much. And I think you referred to this, uh, there's this issue of human nature. I don't know if we talk about, I mean, there's also people's the people's mentality, psychology, psychology and psychiatry and what's going on in society today. But of course, you know, with op opioids, not just mental depression, not just, I mean, but there's also opioids uh, and um, 
and there are also and there's uh, many other factors that you have to take into consideration. But once I was we I remember reading somewhere it says everyone has the right to bear arms, but if you are co convicted of a crime, um, if you are mentally unhinged or registered as being so, then I think there there is, is there a law? Do we have a law that speaks to that? Uh. Well, I mean, uh, regulations are allowed, you know, so okay. uh, there have been a lot of regulations that go up to the Supreme Court. The, the things that the Supreme Court has shot down are bans. And I know they're talking about it again. I don't think they'll have the votes. But um, anytime that like when D.C. tried to ban handguns, that was deemed unconstitutional. D.C. v. Heller, um, you know, when uh, uh, pretty much bans are unconstitutional because you just you can't do that. And I think also what I've seen with Democrats is that there's just a general lack of understanding about firearms. You know, some people say, let's ban all semi-automatic weapons. Literally everything but a revolver is a semi-automatic weapon. <laughs> uh, in fact, even, even some uh, revolvers are now semi-automatic. All semi-automatic means is every time you squeeze the trigger, the, the gun goes off. So unless we all get 1800, you know, styled revolvers, you know, every gun is semi-automatic. Um, and there's nothing in particular about an AR-15 that makes it more deadly other than it's more accurate. Um, and it's just kind of like, we can't buy in guns based on accuracy and, and the stability that a long barrel provides. Um, so again, you know, being a gun owner and having studied this and not being biased, um, I, I know specifically how to accomplish both ends, which is that it's preserving the, the very sacred nature uh, and, and the understanding that our founding fathers had about the importance of an armed population, uh, while also again facilitating and, and promoting that that well-regulated nature. So a lot of regulations can be imposed on this, and it's not to make gun ownership difficult; it's to make gun ownership responsible. That's what it's about. And so, but anytime anybody like me talks about regulations, right away they're just like, you know, oh no, no, you're trying to take away our guns, you know. Yes. But um, but that's 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 what I've generally found is my talent, is trying to bridge the ideological divide, trying to get both sides to see that you can have it both ways. We can have gun ownership, and we can also have these regulations that can cut back on mass shootings. Um, but we, we have to be honest. Uh, and, and not only that, but we have to, you have to study the data. A lot of people just don't study the data about like wh who, was, who are these people that are behind these shootings, you know, what was going on in their lives. And you know, whenever there's new legislation proposed, my first question is, okay, if that law had been in place at the time of the shooting, would it have prevented the shooting? If the answer is no, then what the hell are we wasting our time for? If it wouldn't have stopped any of the shootings, you know? So that's that's the logical approach, uh, the, yeah. the logic that needs to be uh, had in, in this uh, in this debate. I completely agree. Um, I, I, can, I, I completely agree with you. And um, I wanted to ask uh, the students at the Jamaica Theological Seminary, um, Tell me about the, I mean, we don't have much time. We're going to probably take two more questions. But if I were to ask you about gun policy, how difficult or easy it is to acquire a gun in Jamaica? And as against, how, what is crime and violence in Jamaica? What's the crime rate in Jamaica now? Uh, good evening, sir. Good evening, Karen. All right. So I, I can talk to you about this from a... Real quick, because we don't have much time. Yes. Right. From the perspective of law enforcement, um, being that I'm in the field, yeah. Um, for 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 the average person in Jamaica to get a firearm, which 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 is a legal firearm, it's 
it's it's it, it's quite difficult. Believe me, even police officers serving in the country are members of the military who carry guns on a daily basis for their jobs, apply to have a private firearm and it becomes an uphill task. So mm. it's not as easy as it used to be before. It, it is quite difficult. Business persons, you know, just regular persons feeling as if, you know, they want a firearm in order to protect themselves, protect their homes, their properties, their families. And for some reason, whatever legislation or policies they have in place, makes it really, really difficult. The crime rate, as we all know it, the crime rate is pretty high. Um, persons are dying daily. Um, and the, 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 the inflow of illegal guns doesn't make it any better or easier for, for, for us, the citizens in the country. And so um, even though, even though we, we don't have that access to, to legal firearms, are what we call licensed firearms, you still have a lot of persons um, bearing arms that are illegal. And so this is one of the reasons why the crime rate is driven up the way that it is. Um, and, 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 and that's just our reality in Jamaica. That's our live reality right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and you bring up a good point about bans uh, and, and when there's over-regulation, um, because we all know criminals don't follow the law, right? <laughs> they don't care if there's a ban or not. And so yep. in places, even like here in the United States, um, in Chicago, you know, they, they have uh, the handgun ban, yet they just experienced their, their highest year ever of crime. It's it's absolutely ridiculous. And, you know, what, what doesn't get into the minds of some of these politicians is law-abiding citizens listen to the law. And if the law says you can't own a gun, they won't have a gun. Criminals don't follow the law. So they could care less. They're going to own the gun. So all you're going to end up having is a community where all the criminals have guns and all the law-abiding citizens are entirely defenseless. And they're at the mercy of the police officers. And then the police officers, you know, uh, there's not enough. And if there's too much, they, they over-police, becomes abusive. So uh, long story short is, uh, is this is where it comes down to regulation. It comes down to heavy regulation so that we can make sure that I, I want citizens responsible, sane, uh, law-abiding citizens, those are the people that I want with guns. Uh, you know, there was a very interesting shooting that happened in Texas uh, at a church uh, a year or two, it was maybe two or three years ago now. Um, he maybe got off about five rounds before somebody shot him. <laughs> and it's because here in Texas, you know, the, the gun ownership rate is extremely high. So it didn't take long for a, a good guy with a gun to show up and get rid of the bad guy with the gun. Um, why? Because the police officers, even if they took five minutes to show up, do you know how many people that guy could have killed with an AR-15 and three clips? That's almost a, that's actually over a hundred bullets that he had. He could have literally killed a hundred people, got off all those rounds in three minutes before the cops showed up in five minutes. And it's, 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 as a gun owner, I understand, you know, the rapid rate and, and, and how much damage can, can happen before police officers show up. And so a lot of times what I've seen with some of my my Democratic colleagues is, you know, they, they say like, well, that's what the police department is for. I grew up, I grew up in a ghetto. When we moved to Texas, we moved in with my aunt. It was an economically depressed area. It was so bad that down the street, literally down the street, maybe like six houses down, there was an apartment yeah. complex. And there was three drive-by shootings, three weekends in a row. Me and my friends would wake up on Sunday morning to go collect the bullet shells because we thought it was cool and we would drill little holes and then make little necklaces out of them. My parents saw us doing that 
and immediately realize we need to get out of this neighborhood, right? I mean, like what kind of kid wakes up on a Sunday morning to go collect bullet shells? Um, you, you don't know as a kid, right? I didn't know any better. I just thought, hey, it's cool. Like we're collecting all these bullet shells. But uh, the point is, is that when that shooting happened, we called the police department and it took the police department 12 minutes to get there. In an ordinary situation, maybe that's a somewhat decent time. I think five minutes is the target, but the shooting was over in about 90 to 120 seconds. That's all it lasts. I, I would probably say it was probably even 60 seconds. These, these types of things happen very rapidly. And, you know, if you've never, I've unfortunately been in that situation where I see how fast it can happen. And if you look at also like the time frame on some of these shootings, not Columbine where they barricade themselves and stuff, but most of these shootings happen very rapidly. You're talking about three to five minutes tops and a lot of damage can happen. And so, uh, so long story short is, uh, yes, you know, you, we, you can't have over-regulation to the point where it's a de facto ban. Uh, the idea is that you do want honest, responsible, sane, law-abiding American citizens to have firearms and not just here, but abroad as well. Thank you so much. And um, we've seen, I, by the way, um, class, when I, I, one of the things that we do when we study or when we make determination about things or when we analyze, you are, as I said to you, you're making correlations. You're studying variables. You say, for example, you want to make a decision about guns, whether or not you need more regulation or less. Then you have to study the correlational factors. You look at variables. We will talk about that later in the class. It's very important. You, you always want to start. We talk about relative deprivation. Relative deprivation says that societies where you have high crime and violence, there's also high income inequality and poverty. And then we can say, is that true? So therefore, then you say, well, do we, is it really, the, is it really, the, is it really the gun that we need to curb or the relative deprivation? You know, you, you ask yourself those questions, okay? But anyways, we are about to wrap up because I think it's beyond eight and I promised you we're going to end class early today. But before we do that, I'll, just two final, if any, I'm going to allow just one or two final questions. One, two, all right, two final questions. And then Mr. John Castro will wrap up with his final thoughts. And then Abdul, Mr. Abdul will do the vote of thanks. And then, um, and then, well, the vote of thanks, and and probably, and pray for Mister, and we will pray for Mister Castro. And then after that, when he leaves, I'll give you my final. Um, I tell you, give you some homework to do, and then that's it. We're going to be out of here hopefully by eight fifteen. So I'll give you all right, and you can write a summary of today's class. All right, but first, who wants to go first? Uh, Hanif, and then Jason. All right, good night again, colleagues. And Mr. Castro, thank you for facilitating our questions with what I believe are sincere, real, and um, very accommodating answers. Answers with respect to our concerns. It would be remiss of this group not to ask a question related to the course of study, which is um, guidance and counseling. So, and sir, I really thank you for mentioning correlation because it beautifully set up my question. So it was a beautiful segue. The correlation between one of the factors you mentioned that causes the crazy shooting, which is um, psychology. Now, we're aware that COVID did a tremendous blow, a blow that probably has never been so powerful since slavery to the psychology of the, the human race. You can't even talk about America or Jamaica or whatever, the human race. No, 
what the helping professional world, psychology, psychiatry, social work, everything in between and around should be focusing on is how do we deal with the implications, the tremendous far-reaching implications of the two and a half year lockdown. Now, Sir Castro, picture this. Picture Americans going through environmental crises that contributed to depression, contributed to ADHD, contributed to the myriad of severities in, the, in psychology, causing shootings, causing domestic violence, causing rape, causing suicide. No, imagine those factors multiplied possibly exponentially by being in the environment for two and a half years. You're unable to go. Sir Castro, you are a realist. You are an idealist and a realist. And it, I can assume that because of your responses. Imagine Americans who realistically ain't going to work because they want to make that rent. They just want to leave the hell that they call home. Now imagine not being able to leave the hell you call home for two and a half years. Now we are seeing with the opening up of the global economy, what we are facing now, that you, blessed man, if you are given the highest seat in the world, have to know this, which in my opinion, I don't think the countries are realizing that we have a lot of crazy things going on. How do you, sir, as president of the United States, plan to address the tremendous destruction caused by the strain on psychology from the COVID lockdown. What, are, what is in the constitution, number one, that addresses mental stability, policies, measures, security, insurances, whatever. And what do you think will be the decades-long implications if we do not address the mental factors like, hey, we came out of a lockdown since 2020 to 2022. And now I am a yeah. tyrant with a gun where 2019, I was employed. How you deal with, one, what is the constitutional response to mental health? And what do you think will happen to America and the world who depends on America if you don't deal with those mental problems now as a president? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think what we need is we need federal legislation to prevent that from ever happening again. Um, you know, I I understand why it happened. You know, we we got hit with a once in a century pandemic and we immediately just deferred to whatever the doctors and medical professionals said. And they said uh, no masks. And then never mind. Yes, definitely masks. Uh, oh, never mind. Not the ones with the little vapor thing on it. Uh, never mind. Let's everybody just lock down, everybody stay home. Um, now we're actually dealing with the fallout of the lockdowns. So I'll give you a personal example. Um, my son and daughter have back to back for every two weeks been getting strep and Krups cough and, and every, every, they've been perpetually sick for almost eight months. And uh, I, I am a researcher, like, so I like researching and I've researched the hell out of this and I figured out what the issue is. What the issue is, is that these these types of viruses, you know, strep and everything, they mutate every three months or every well every, every every six to nine months. You know, they'll mutate, and 
what ends up happening is there's a new strain. And that's why, you know, you can end up getting it once every two to three years, right? Because the strain mutates enough to where your, your immune system doesn't recognize it, you get reinfected. So what ended up happening as a result of the lockdown is these viruses kept mutating, but it wasn't spreading around the people. And so what ends up happening is now you have about six to eight variants that are out there. And that's why my kids keep getting sick because they go out, they get one strain, their body recovers from it. Then they get another strain and they, they every two weeks now they're getting sick. And so what basically that's, that's the side effect of these lockdowns. Uh, the lockdowns were a really bad idea. Uh, even, even masks, you know, they're starting to realize now that, you know, all the humidity that builds up from the mask, it can actually build up liquid in the lungs and actually result in long-term respiratory problems. And so now they're just like, oh crap, like maybe we shouldn't have recommended wearing masks all the time. You know, I, I was, I remember driving around at the peak of the pandemic and seeing people wearing a mask inside of their own car. And I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, but it makes sense, right? You, like, you get scared and, and you want to be safe. And so you just do whatever your medical professional says. But what I've slowly realized over the years is we are not as advanced as we think we are. Um, we, we, we're definitely going based on, on what we understand and, and the best we can interpret the data at the time. But I think deferring and, and just doing whatever the doctors said without regard for the constitutional and freedom and mental health, I think that was a really, really bad idea. And we're dealing with the fallout of those consequences now. Even China, President Xi is realizing that his lockdowns were a bad idea, right? And so he even started backpedaling on that. He's like, oh, crap, never mind. We need to open up the economy again. Um, but but by then it was it was too late, right? You know, it, you could have had a, a, a more stable spread. But now that he just completely unleashed, now the, the death rate just skyrocketed um, because hospitals get overwhelmed. Uh, the death rate skyrocketed because hospitals get overwhelmed and, and, and it needed to be more staggered and, and slowly spread out. So long story short is, um, is, is yes, we need to have legislation in place to, to make sure that, that there's not this sort of hysterical response again, that we, we consider the, the short-term because again, that has to do with the short-term vision versus long-term vision, right? They just wanted to immediately stop it. So it's just like everybody wear masks, everybody stay home. You're not thinking about the long-term effects of that, of, of how that's going to affect children, how that's going to affect respiratory, how that's going to affect mental health. And, um, and, and that goes back into what Ronaldo was saying about strategy, you know, which is, again, you know, strategy is not just about short-term results, but also long-term. And too often in politics, we're focused on short-term results and not long-term implications. And, uh, and we need to we need to bring that back. We used to have that, right? You know, JFK was a visionary. Ronald Reagan was a visionary. It's really hard to find those types of visionary leaders um, that uh, that have both short term goals and long term visions. Thank you so much, Mr. Castro. Thank you, thank you, and. And by yes, the way, sir. that was a very good question, Hanif. Um, you know, this whole issue of mental health and responding to the whole, whether look exploring how COVID has affected people, and how this has and and what's going and and how there's been a rise in terms of mass shootings and so on and so forth, and what policy, what are we doing as a society to respond to that? Um, that is real. That's a good one, and I'm, I'm Mr. Castro raised a very important point. And finally, Jason, and after Jason speak, Mr. Castro will wrap up. Uh, after you ask his question, uh, Mr. Mr. Castro will respond and then he will 
probably probably and there's an update on the Castro v Trump thing that uh, I don't know if you have an update on that. As you know, Mr. 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 Castro is suing um or challenging Mr. Uh, Donald Donald Trump, former president Mr. Donald Trump, saying that he is ineligible for inciting um the insurrection on January 6th. And so there are updates on that. We want to we hear a little bit about that as we wrap up. I know I promise for you, it's 8.11. Don't worry, you will not be here beyond 8.30. But you guys are asking the questions, though. So Jason and then Mr. Castro. Yes, sir. Last question for me. I don't know if I will get this opportunity again. All right. Some persons of the Caribbean uh, share the same sentiments of US, United States of America, would have or is atrocious to help put the Caribbean in their current predicament. Mm. What say you? <laughs> and um, sell yourself to the Caribbean that if it's a possibility, we can reach out to our persons over in America as a citizen to say, all right, vote for Mr. Castro as the next president. I'm sorry, so can you repeat that one more time? What was the question? All right. The Caribbean, some of the persons in the Caribbean share the same sentiments of U.S. did or currently put the Caribbean in a bad predicament. No. And I ask of you, what say you? Do you agree with the Caribbean or do you disagree? And lastly, sell yourself okay. to us, the Caribbean, to say, all right, I am the good Samaritan. Come to the Caribbean to help, mm -hmm. to restore and to uplift the Caribbean people. During okay. He's saying that, um, do you believe that the Caribbean, are you of the same, are you of like mind? Do you also believe that um, the Caribbean's predicament in terms of their economic reality, being a very dependent country, countries, is it, a, is it a, it's a, it's America or a post-industrial country such as America? And, uh, and then are you, of, and then he wants to know, what, what are you going, what are you going to do about in terms of coming to, are you going to come to the Caribbean and provide support and help to kind of offset that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so going back to what I had mentioned earlier is um, it, it requires it, it requires investment. It requires foreign investment because, you know, there, there are ways that the way that I view it is this. It, it's no different than than owning um, a, a large corporation. Right. You know, if you are gen the General Motors Corporation, um, you know, General Motors doesn't say like, you know, uh, you know, oh, well, you know, I'm only going to invest in GM. You know, they will occasionally Make, they make a lot of investments in smaller companies, right? They're suppliers. You know, if somebody's making the, the, the tinted windows, you know, they're going to uh, support them, you know, and they're going to find ways to integrate them into their into their business model. Um, and then you have the assembly, you know, plants in, in Mexico and you have. So there's ways that you can include other countries in the overall uh, economic mission and economic plan of the United States. And it takes, again, um, a a capitalist, you know, let's just be honest, it takes a capitalist, it takes an executive to come in and basically, in a way, start deputizing different uh, different places, you know, what how what can Mexico do to to assist and contribute? What can the Caribbean do? What can Jamaica in particular do? Uh, what type of resources do they have? 
you know, um, you know, what type of uh, talent do they have? Can we cultivate that talent? You know, can we set up, you know, vocational schools um, to maybe make them uh, uh, competent in a particular area? So then we can we can move some facilities over there. So the the idea is is being able to to do that, right? Like you know, it's even even here with my staff. You know, uh, I'm a big believer in never firing anybody. I don't believe that 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 anybody has no value. So I'll find somebody and pretty much try to find what kind of role can I can I use you for? Where where can I allocate you to, to maximize your value. And so I want to look at that, like all the countries throughout South America, you know, what is it that, that El Salvador, that Peru, that Chile, um, that Jamaica, that the Dominican Republic, you know, what are all the different, what is unique in this area and how can we integrate you into the American capitalist model? And we did it, you know, with, with NAFTA, right? Like, you know, we looked at Mexico and, and we started moving a lot of the assembly plants there. So, you know, a lot of the vehicles are assembled there and then uh, and then moved over back into the United States. And so to me, it's it, it again comes down to to economic uh, uh, strategy. Thank you. So that, that's powerful. And and one, you know, we talked about NAFTA. And I, and that was a powerful point. And I, my my question is, when you listen to Edward Siaga, the, the former prime minister of Jamaica, his charge was that structural ad adjustment was not done with a human face or at a human pace. Okay, it was fast. And then Michael Manley, former prime minister of Jamaica, said, well, we were given money with conditionalities as if we don't know. I, sorry, I'm an American. As if Jamaicans don't know how to how to um how to plan how to develop and so on and so forth so monies were given to the caribbean but with strings and not with not with the idea as if they know what to do with the funds and we talk about occidentalism and orientalism and we talk about balfour in egypt where the when when europe had colonized egypt um the, in parliament in the 16th century what did balfour or cromer say to parliament he said well we know what's best for egypt Anything good that comes out of Egypt is because of us. But part of so part, I think part of what Caribbean wants to do is an ability to, to partner, to partner with with the with post-industrial countries and to provide investment where they have a chance to have a little bit more weight to develop and to spend it in the way that they want to spend it. But the problem is if Jamaicans are going to want to rival. That means competition. That's more competition for the U.S. That's why I said it's one thing. As Jamaicans, we want to. It's we have to, Jamaicans have to do it for themselves too. The Caribbean, say for example, Guyana has oil. What does that mean for Guyana? Okay, so so it's so in one sense, yes, we want to. We we want we look forward. We look to to the bankers and to the U.S. and to the American president to help. But at the same time, they're going. They have. They come with. That doesn't necessarily mean that the American president doesn't have a base, you know, and he wants to set up. So as, as uh, to you guys, as in as you guys in Caribbean thought who are from Jamaica, my point is not only should we look to the U.S., but you also we have you have to develop strategy because we live in a very competitive world. OK, and we have to be more creative and strategic in terms of the partnerships that we seek and how that looks and what that looks like. But we also have to be bold. You have to be bold, okay? Just like um, Singapore. 
<laughs> and Singapore, we can study Singapore. But all right, now we're going to give it, Mr. Castro, I'm going to have you finish. And then Mr. Abdul is going to do the vote of thanks. And then Hanif is going to pray for you. Okay, so Mr. Castro, final words from you, and and give us and and um and you have the, the freedom to do to say anything. You can end five ten minutes. You can end, and uh, we give you the free range to do so. Okay. Yes. Got it. Got it. Comments. Well, uh, um, I mean, I'll just also remember to touch the, to touch the, on Castro yeah, Beach. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll end it with okay. with an update on uh, yeah. on the court case. So, um, you know. I have been a part of the resistance Republicans since uh, early, uh, late 2017. Um, we basically recognized that uh, Trump was uh, a major threat and uh, a closet white supremacist. And I made it a point that uh, I was going to devote all of my intellect and all of my financial resources to ensuring that uh, he lost the presidency and was never able to regain it. Uh, we achieved that in 2020, and as we expected, he's trying to come back. And initially, I was behind the scenes, but it was in 2020 that I decided to to come forward. And so I was new to the political scene, but those that know me in the business world know that uh, I am very innovative, I'm very strategic, and I very early on uh, in 2020 started laying the groundwork for the 2024 campaign. The cornerstone of the 2024 campaign is this lawsuit. So right now, uh, I am relatively unknown on the national level, but this case, which right now we have an appeal pending before the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit, they're going to decide whether Judge Cannon should have re uh, recused from the lawsuit. But basically, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment says that if you ever partook in an insurrection or even provided aid or even just comfort to insurrectionists, that you are forever barred from holding public office in the United States. And there are a lot of uh, intellectuals in D.C. that debated, oh, how does Section 3 of the 14th Amendment work? How is it enforced? Well, I came up with a legal theory, and I'm now pressing that theory in the federal judiciary. And so uh, because I'm about action. Um, you know, I talking is good. You know, talking is really good. I, I did what you're doing, you know, when I was in my uh, early to mid 20s. And it's important, right? Because before you can lead, you have to learn how to follow. You have to learn how to how to understand the system. And once you have that knowledge, then you need to figure out what can I actually do? And do not ever underestimate yourself. I, I've seen that all too often. I'm a perfect example of what one person can do. Let's let's look at let's just look at the obviousness here. I live in a town called Mansfield. It is a suburb of the Dallas Fort Worth area. The population here is about 35,000. I live in a small quasi rural town in the middle of nowhere, Texas. And yet I am personally suing the former president of the United States, one of the most powerful politicians in the entire world. Why? Because I studied the law, I studied the system and I figured out how I could take them on one-on-one. -on -one. Don't ever, ever sell yourself short. You and you alone set your own limits. So there were people that really didn't think I was going to do this. And when I did it, you know, they're thinking, oh, you're not going to succeed, you know. And now that I'm actually putting his attorneys to the test and they're realizing this isn't a joke, 
that this is very much is an existential threat to his candidacy. Uh, and now we have multiple appeals pending before the 11th Circuit, and we're preparing a writ of certiorari right now to the US Supreme Court. They're realizing just how serious it is. Um, and the media hasn't picked up on it yet because, you know, they're, they're not attorneys. But uh, you will have had this, this sneak peek, <laughs> yes. you know, at, uh, and you'll be able to say, hey, he came into to our, our classroom here, you know, digital classroom. We actually spoke with him. Um, but, uh, but yes, when the media picks up on this, which I would guess it'll probably be in about maybe 30 to 90 days, it's yes. going to become a political firestorm. And, uh, and, and I already have interviews lined up with CNN, NBC, ABC. They all want to interview me. They're just waiting for the, the case to clear the dismissal phase. But, uh, but again, it, this, this was all, I, I'm, I'm, I'm one of many attorneys that are successful. Right. I mean, you can find an attorney like me in just about every city in America, you know, has a good amount of, of you know, staff working for him, has a decent sized law firm. Um, the difference is what you do with what God has blessed you with. And I'm of the firm belief that God didn't give me this wealth to squander it and to just indulge in myself. I enjoy myself when I can, you know, I, I try to treat myself, but I'm the firm belief that he gave me this for a reason. And I know that my calling and my time has come and I'm not afraid to answer that calling. And people have told me, look, you're dealing with a group of people that didn't even think twice about attacking the United States Capitol. Do you think they would think twice about attacking your home or your children's sleep? My answer to that is, all is as God wills it. I don't know what has in store and my life may be threatened, but I know what my calling is and I'm here to see that it's done. Thank you so much. Abdul is going to do the vote of thanks and Hanif will pray. Abdul. Okay. And good night again to everyone and uh, the honorable Mr. John Anthony Castro, on behalf of the faculty, staff, and students of the Jamaica Theological Seminary, we'd like to extend the most sincerest thanks to you for taking the time out from your busy schedule so you can come and interact with us and impart the wealth of knowledge that you have to us so we can better understand what is going on in America in the world and by extension in Jamaica. In your quest to become the Republican nomination, win the Republican nomination for running as president for the United States of America, we sincerely hope you succeed. And if you succeed, we will sincerely hope that you will beat the Democratic nominee, the president of the United States of America, Mr. Joe Biden. And in your quest to accomplish that, I would like for you to consider coming back to the Jamaica Theological Seminary next year when the presidential campaign is eaten up and look to us to be like consultants. We have a wealth of knowledge here and we can yeah. aid you. We can Absolutely. aid you. And <laughs> if you reach as far as we expect you to reach, we will make sure we give you the best data, best statistics for you to become the next president of the United States of America. And again, 
we sincerely thank you for gracing us with your present presence. And God bless you. God bless America. God bless Jamaica. And thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I have to clap. Thank you so much. Thank you for that. Guys, you are making me teary-eyed. I'm impressed with my students today. I am so impressed with you guys. Um, uh, Hanif. Wow. Abdullah, I feel proud to be your classmate, sir. I love to claim I hope we can do good. Okay. Members of staff. Oh, sorry, members of the class, sir, the Honorable John Anthony Castro, please join me in minds and hearts as I beseech the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, the glory, the honor, the sovereignty, the dominion, the power, the might, the authority is all yours. Lord, you play chess when all of us are playing checkers. You are moves ahead. You already know and understand how the game began and how it will end for us and for the right honorable John Anthony Castro. Mighty God, it would not be appropriate for me to come on behalf of the class and this honorable man as if I am worthy. I ask that you redeem me, wash me from my sins, cleanse me from all unrighteousness, iniquitous thoughts, desires, actions, and words, that my prayers not be hindered and fall back to the earth. Mighty God, David, like Sir Castro, was unknown, seemingly insignificant, not considered, and he was in the back, just like Mr. Castro was from the ghetto. And you took him, mighty God, David. And Lord, being the least, you rose him to the greatest, to such a point that the generation, the lineage that you chose to bring your son, the ultimate one, the savior of the world through, was the line of David. And Lord God, in my heart and my spirit, if just by the mere words, the words of wonderful ambition spoken by Mr. Castro, I see him as a prospective David, the man that you had chosen to do wonderful, great and awesome exploits for Israel, as Mr. Castro can do for America. Mighty God, you said in your word, in Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. Yes. America's economy was founded on that principle. In God we trust. And Lord, we are seeing where America has slid, regressed into immorality and all but anarchy because they have lost trust in them. But Mr. Castro, with no consideration for his life and his safety, has stepped up, taken Goliath by the horns like David, and has decided to represent on the foundation of morality and more importantly, godliness, righteousness, mighty God. 
Lord, when you search through those who looked amazing, sounded amazing, and stood amazing, you cast them aside and you chose the one in the back because of his heart. Lord, you do not measure as we do. You do not look for beauty. You do not look for power. You do not look for wealth and glory, but you look for the capacity of the heart that is empty and open and intent on accommodating you. And we believe, I believe that Mr. Castro did not speak empty words to manipulate or deceive us. I believe that he spoke with an intention that is true. And I believe that he also relies on you to guide him to the success that he has achieved now and for the success of the great nation of America for the benefit of the world. If this is so, if this is so, mighty God, that his heart is inclined to you, rise him up, mighty God, in this time that you are seeking such souls to do your work. And as also as you are searching out, Lord God, and preparing judgment, you said, mighty God, that you look for a man to stand in the gap as you were preparing for destruction, but you saw none. And here, mighty God, is Mr. John Anthony Castro standing in the gap against all odds, against all the naysayers, mighty God, speaking words of godliness. Promote him, protect him, provide for him, position him, propel him, mighty God. His family, his entire being, surrounded with the hedge that cannot be removed, with the unshakable force of God that is greater than any writing, than any law. The kingdom of God that cannot be established, Lord God, that cannot be removed. It cannot be established by man and it cannot be removed by him. Let that kingdom reside in Mr. Castro's heart. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. We don't make predictions. We only say, Lord, let your will be done in the name of Jesus Christ. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen and amen. Thank you so much amen, thank amen. you hanif thank you abdul thank okay, you class. thank you miss miss campbell the head of our de of the You're department welcome. is here thank you for for staying there she was here the entire time thank you so much and um but uh, she likes to keep a low profile she's probably not going to miss campbell is not going to say much maybe but um our head of department is here mr castro and she was here for but thank you so much miss Castro. do you have anything you want to say oh me Miss, sorry, Miss Campbell, do you want to say anything? Oh, Mr. okay. Campbell? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Um, it was our pleasure and honor to have you with us, sir. Um, yeah. We appreciate your presence and your candor in answering the questions. Sometimes when I heard the questions, I felt frightened for you. <laughs> and um, when I heard the responses, I felt more frightened. <laughs> but... Um, we know that you are in the hands of the Lord and we, we trust him to, to guide your affairs. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me all. You have a good yes. night. John, thank you. And um, thank you. 
Yeah. And this was, um, just so you know, this is be this was broadcasted all um all over the world. It's on Facebook on every single one of. I have about ten different Facebook pages and a probably a, and sixty different Facebook groups. So it's all over the world. Thousands of people are watching us, and I want to say to, if you're watching this live feed, thank you so much for joining us. And this will be available on YouTube and all over feeds um in audio. If you are joining at the end of this, you might have missed it. We had on the on in our class at the Jamaica Theological Seminary in Jamaica, Caribbean Thought, we had the US 2024 presidential candidate, Republican, John Anthony Castro. And it was powerful. And guess what? My students were awesome. And I'm so <laughs> impressed with you guys. We'll talk later. But we're going to wrap up the class now. So, but thank you, Mr. Castro. And right. I'm going to you to leave. And we'll, I'll send you a text, but thank you, man. Yeah. God bless yeah. you. Yeah, have a good and night. God keep you and have a great night. We'll talk. All right. Bye-bye. Yeah, yeah man. Bye-bye. And guys, okay. thank you. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Let me, okay, we're on Facebook. Let me leave Facebook now. Let me stop Facebook Live. Stop. And it's just us. Thank you, guys. You guys yes, are great. Yes, I'm done. Totally it's the first I hear you speak, talk. sir. Powerful, man. It's a um, You can't talk, sir. I am so impressed with you guys. Guys, the only homework you have to do for me is just to do a summary of the presentation. <laughs> That's it. Do the summary of today's class in your groups. In your groups. I'm making it easy. In your groups. Okay, take different sections of it. We, I think he spoke for an hour and a half. Maybe you could divide up the work. Probably one person do the first 15 minutes. Another person to the second fifteen, or you could do it thematically in terms of what did in terms of topics or the questions. But I would love for you guys interact with the with the discussions today, based on this presentation. You you guys asked some very good questions. You guys were amazing. I was very I, I was very impressed. Very good. Keep up the good work. And finally, some of you gave me some work. Some of you in terms of individual work. I would love to see if you haven't given me any individual work, not group work, but individual. Please. And I give you the initiative to send me in so that I can ascribe you a grade. All right. But we're going to end class right now. You guys get to leave her because you guys have been sitting in for six hour classes, five hour classes, four hour classes. So you get to leave early today. All right, guys. Now continue to text me through WhatsApp, email me as well. Any questions or whatever. Okay. Interact with me. And, um, and I'm going to have this particular class again on YouTube and I'm going to, this time, you guys are going to type the summary and interact with the presentation. I will do it and send it to me before class next week. That's easy. All right. Any so questions? So, Mackenzie, yes, can, can yes, we sir. speak in a few minutes after after the class um, ends? Jason? Sean no, Sean, Sean? Yes. Um, you know what? This is what I would love to do. I would love to end the class and not do anything else with class. I had a very rough day. <laughs> no, I'm telling you, I had a very rough day today. When I lost connection, I wasn't even I was I wasn't even going to go back online. And it's like I but I was I got that connection. That was great. So right now I need to sort out some stuff as well. So I'm not gonna email us, sir. I'll email you. I have WhatsApp. You can call me directly, but being on here, no, but you can call me or text me on WhatsApp directly. Okay. I it's free for you guys to call or text me on WhatsApp. So you can do that and I'll, I'll answer. But on here, I'm logging off of, of this computer. It's giving me grief all day. All right. Take care. You guys Sir. rock. All age for people who were vocal. Sir. Who weren't as vocal. Um, you get the A minus. Okay. Yes. Can I, sir, I asked a question in the chat. Yes, I typed yes. a question in the chat. 
and I realized that my question was not oh, we didn't brought see. forward. Okay. Me too, sir. My question was not so answered. I don't want to be said that I wasn't as vocal because the question okay. that I had. Yes. yes. Okay. If, if I had received my response, then I would have said something further. But my what question was, was overlooked. What was, okay. Ask the question. Send the question in a text, and I will send it to him and have him send it back to me. Okay. 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 okay I will sir. ask him if you yeah. have questions that he did not answer. Send me the question, and he will there answer are two it. Two relevant me. questions for you, sir. Maria's and Patrick's question. Text. Text me the question and I'll send it and I'll see what and I'll give him a response. Okay. But thank okay, you guys. Sir. God bless sir. you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. And sir. After the class, you can who, who is that? No, you, you spoke of individual paper, sir. So I was asking you what topic are what? you spoke of individual paper to submit to you. Individual work. Individual yeah, work. Individual work. Okay. And as I said, if you listen, read the emails I sent, I talk about initiative. Okay? Noted. This, this, this class is a lab, you know. I want to see what initiatives you guys take and how you... Some of you are taking initiatives and the next thing you know, you get back a grade. That's great because you sent... Somebody, you, Jason, you sent a beautiful paper already, though. You sent me individual work. You did. And I asked you a question. So maybe respond to the question I asked you. Okay? Because once sure, you sir. Said, yeah, I yes, Jason. You was it Jason or there's a Sean in the class? No, you, you it's you, Jason. You didn't you write something about Plato? You sent me something about was it about Plato or about class? Or was it was Sean? It was Vashon. Sorry, it was Sean. It wasn't oh. Jason. It was Vashon. So Vashon sent me an individual work and I responded. That's great. And um, you might send me a piece of work. If you send me something on a paper or something, I'm gonna respond to it. I always respond. I'm gonna ask her a question. It's good for you to look at the question I ask you and think about it and write me a response. Okay, let's see where you, where it goes. All right. Some of you, okay. All right, take care, guys. Sir, are you saying yeah. there's no specific topic? Sorry. I have sent uh, a paper, a lecture note with a lot of questions. I want you to take the initiative and send me an individual work, a journal. It could be a journal that journals your your life and why you believe you are what you are today, okay, by exploring thinking. Okay, say for example, I'm writing a paper on my father. I forgive my dad. I forgive my dad for the way he raised me. Because now, as I grow, as I, as I, as I read and I understand how my parents were raised, how my dad was raised and what he went through, now I realize why his parenting skills were so poor, why his disciplining skills were so poor. And that ultimately affects people. The culture we have in Jamaica, this violent culture, because it's in, in, in this tendency to discipline in violence and in anger. So kids don't see the discipline and the correction. All they see is the anger. And that becomes a coping mechanism. So, you know, so I, so as I think about my life and, as, and what I wanted to look like, I didn't want to look violent and aggressive and so on. Because, but when you grow up in a kind of household that I grew up in a Christian home, but at the same time, it was violent because the discipline was violent. Then you can build an argument. That's part of Caribbean thinking. Caribbean thinking. Because remember, you know, we talk about the organizational dynamics of society. I live in a nuclear home, a mom and a dad. But um, but and my mom and dad, they were pastors and stuff. It was very difficult for me. But their upbringing, the upbringing that my dad have had affected his ability. So I'm writing a forgiveness paper. All right. 
Because now I understand all things. As you get older, you learn. You start to read. You understand the dynamics of society and so on. So no, I used to hurt. I used to say, I hate my dad. I hate him. But I'm not, I don't say that no more. I've forgiven him because of his upbringing, his sociology. Okay, and if you read the, the comment of my book, I dedicated to my dad who was given a ninth grade education, but still expected to raise a family and to do X, Y, Z. You could do something like that. Take the initiative. You see, I just wrote a paper and then, and then you can talk about Rex Nettleford and Edith Clark, my mother who fathered me. Okay, and they talk about concubinage and, and, and lifestyle of poor communities in Jamaica. Okay, how does that speak to you? How, does, how can you identify with that? Okay, use your initiative. Okay, take care, guys. Class is ended. Bye, sir. Bye, Bye, -bye. sir. Now, by the way, some of you did life and death. Um, some of you did a, did a submitted, they submitted the, uh, a review on life and death. And I have said, as it relates to life and death, I ask the question, how when you're, when you're reviewing a piece of film, or if you're reviewing anything, you always want to find, you always want to talk about how does it affect you at the psychological level, at the psychological level, at the philosophical level, at the, um, the theological level, at the spiritual level. You, also, you always want to, when we ask to review something, a piece of work, a piece of literature, a piece of art, a film or whatever, you always want to talk about how does it affect you as an individual. And then when you review film, you will always want to ask the question, is it believable? Is it believable? Because of course, film tries to tell a story. Film, when you watch a film, it try, it, it, the purpose of film is to purport truth. It is to purport a type of truth. And we said that in the beginning of the, the last class that we had is that cinema, well, sorry, um, documentary film, according to, to Leacock and Rauch, film, um, documentary film that uses a uh, uh, um, handheld three millimeter camera is used in that way because documentary film tries to, 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 depict, to depict a certain kind of truth. So the lens and the editing and so on is done in a way to tell the truth, okay? But then, and I say to you, but nothing is free from perspective, okay? So, of course, you're going to say, well, I believe that the, this particular film talks about what has dogged Jamaica, but it, I believe that it was couched. It was lopsided. And I, I talked about the fact that I believe that it was lopsided in one sense, but in, a, in another sense, it was, it was very effective. It was very effective in, in, in highlighting what has uh what has happened the the, the mixed realities of the caribbean okay so you want to talk about how it affects you at the psychological level at the theological level you might even want to talk about how it affects you at the legal level so but how does it affect you and of course you want to move you don't want you want to stay away from using i when you write and i said to you just uh, for those of us who read so those of us who are following and and following my reviews and so on. These things that I give you, when I, when I review your work and I give you little gems, it's very important that you um, look at them. I say, okay, because I'm giving you so that when you go into your final research paper, of course, you know how to, so this is a, this is a dress rehearsal, so to speak. So you give me, as you give me work, 
I review your work and based on what you have given me, then I would give you a recommendation as to what to do. Now, one of the things that I want to get some time to talk with you about is reference and how to document properly. That is one of the major problems with a lot of some of our work. We are not documenting properly. I want to do a, at least a 30 to one hour class where I talk to you about the importance of documenting and what it is. I think people, even after I graduated from, um, from Jamaica Theological Seminary, I, think I did not appreciate and fully understand the importance of documenting. I think that is very important, especially when you, when you begin to write and when you start to appreciate writing. Documenting is very important, especially in academia, okay? Because part of documenting is, is also recognizing people's work and giving credit for people's work, yes? And of course, we live in a society where I talk to you about the fact, say, for example, Pythagoras theorem or algebra. Who created algebra or Pythagoras? The person who created, who founded or created certain things, they, they weren't recognized for doing the thing that they were created to do. And many Af black and brown peoples and things that people start, black and brown people did and work that they did escape them because we don't write, we are verbose, we, we don't write people. It, through theft, they steal your work and it becomes other people's work. We don't want to commit the same crime, okay? We want to recognize people when, when we borrow from them. But at the same time, also document how you interact with work. That's, that's another thing I want to, to, I want to spend some time. And that, this class is not about that, but, but we will spend some time to do that um, uh, later on. Not next week, but probably week after next. I want to really spend, and, and it's just to provide, to support you in your future endeavors, okay, in terms of how you write, how you speak, when you make, when you are speaking about issues in an academic way or making commentaries on issues of the day, okay, how you interact with very different sources and how you transit, how you move from one theme or one topic to the next, how you Say, for example, somebody was writing about Marcus Garvey and talk about and, and begin the paper by talking about Marcus Garvey, um, talk about this propaganda and how societies were built on propaganda. What does that have to do with life and death? It has everything to do with life and death. I can, I am already seeing the relationship, but you have to show how this idea of propaganda falls true, lie. How that, how the film Life and Death speak to that, okay? Because I said to you, what is revolutionary about films like Life and Death documentary film is that people are used to films where the characters and the stars are who? What do they look like? What language do they speak? Where are they from? These, but then films like Life and Death and so on interrupts, interrupts through violence, okay, our visual by showing unusual characters that we're not used to seeing on the screen. That's what V.S. Nepal did in his literary genius. That's what Homi Baba is talking to when she talks about um, how she celebrates people not at the center, but those at the periphery, okay? She celebrates those people that you don't usually see, the stories that get left behind, yes? Or the people talk about globalization and, and capitalism are beautiful. But then we take a stop. Oh, no, globalization has not created the kind of prosperity that it ought to be. Yes, and we talk about 
this propaganda. So yeah, how does this idea of propaganda and how is he using propaganda? And how does life and death speaks to propaganda? So, so when, and okay, and the next point I want to talk to you about as it relates, oh, we're coming up on 6.30 and we talk about life and death is I said to you earlier, I think in the group, I think I sent a text out in the group and in the text, I said to you guys that um, one of the things that you notice with the film, by the way, before I went to University of Penn and did cinema and globalization, I did a course called Cinema and Globalization. The way how I view film was has changed significantly. Is that when I'm watching film, it's like I'm reading a book. You talk about what's the plot? Why is it taking so long to, to develop the, the, the storyline? Who are the characters? The characterization. So when you review a film, you want to look at the plot. What is the plot? What's the setting? What are the assumptions? What? Why did the video spend some time focus on that little that 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 key that fell on the ground why why did anytime where anytime the camera shows something is a reason when you so now when you start to watch film you have a different appreciation for it and when you when you find when you see what goes into making a film and of course now i am now i'm experimenting with video editing okay and sometimes the editor is very careful about what he puts because he wants a certain effect and what music is on the background because you want a certain effect. So this word is very important, scenes. When films are built, they use scenes, scene one, scene two, scene three, scene four. And, they and sometimes scene four is done before scene one, but they mix it up and they give it to you. So scenes, film don't have to follow a unilinear, it could be multifaceted. Because it's telling a story and it is trying to tell a story, but it's trying to, but of course, film not supposed to be anachronistic. What is the word? Anachronistic. That's a very important word. Anachronistic. In other words, when I talk about anachronistic, in other words, it when you it should be smooth. Okay? It should be smooth and seamless. Yes. So one of the things when you talk about, so one, if I ask you to review a film or to review something, I'm like, okay, they ask you the first thing, is it true? What is the plot? What is the theme? What message is the writer, the author, the, the videographer, the, or, or whatever? What is he trying to get across? Did he make the message? How did the film affect you at the emotional level? Um, is it lopsided? Okay. What did it, what areas fail and what areas were effective? Mm -hmm. And as it relates to Caribbean thought and our assumptions about Caribbean, how does it speak to, the, speak to that? Okay. But of course, you talk about the background of the movie. Nobody talked about how this book was based on Stephanie Black's, how this film was based on Stephanie Black's book, A Small Place, sorry, Jamaica Kingate book, A Small Place that talks about US penetration in Antigua and how it affected them and how that book is about Antigua, but the film is about Jamaica, which talks about the dialogical relationship. Okay, very important. So, so um, so this is no, well, so this it 
So when I so this allows me to see where you are and to provide some advice and so on and so forth. So it's not, as I said to you, when I give critique, I want to give constructive critique. It is when I give critique, it's not just to, it's not to tear you. I'm not tearing you down. I want to build you up so that you are amazing. Okay, so that you are empowered and you can become stalwart academics, yes, who understand certain things. So, so that's so that's that's good. But so far, by the way, one person submitted a piece of work which I am going to share in class next week or something. We're only gonna we're gonna end class early today. We will end about at uh we will end about 7:45 today. Today we will end early. But um, and I will give you an opportunity to for those of us who haven't done any work, you can go do you can spend some time to get some work done. I don't know if um, John Castro has joined us as yet. I don't see him on on um, on the screen, so he will be joining us in two minutes. So um, so that's why we and then notice that by the way, after this class, the next lecture we're going to be talking about corruption. We're going to be talking about corruption. And that's very important. And also, we have not talked about the discovery of oil in the Caribbean. And by the way, there is a there is a story as it relates to what um, in terms of the Haitian about Caricom intervening through force in Haiti. The Car Caricom had decided that they will not intervene in force. That's great. That is great. That is a, that's a good story for you to follow. Um, Daniel, I see your hand up. Daniel, you had a, you, I see your hand up. Daniel? Okay, okay, the problem. Yeah, oh. oh no, sorry, that, your hand.